Greetings and welcome, all you commanders, eagles, and angels. This is Rainbird, and I'm grateful to welcome you to Tara and Rama's Hard News on Friday night at BDS Radio Web, Station One. So let's take a few moments to get into that heart space and set the tone for the evening. Breathe in through your nose, out through your mouth, gently, slowly, Three breaths, or however many breaths you want to do, or whatever protocol you'd like to do for that. Let go of that drop of the day. Can you hear that calling go? So go into your heart space. Gather with your guides and guardians your totems, your ancestors, whoever you'd like to journey with the king you drum with. And there's a council fire, and it's in the center. So let us gather around that council fire in that virtual way we know how to do. In that nice little circle, the castle fire is in the center. As we call in the seven sacred galactic directions, 
in the Mayan tradition. open in the dawn that is upon us so that we may see things clearly. We welcome from the north to have the sight. Wisdom mature among us so that we may see everything from within. Alakin, I am another you, you are another me. So let's just take a few moments to look at the Mayan record of days for today and for the for the week ahead. So we are in the way of Khan and we are in the um I believe the third day of the ten portal days that are on the um <clears throat> one side of that central one. We're in the eighth union, so 
Uh, we've got these 10 portal days in a row, and we start that on Wednesday, and we go all the way till next Friday when we come back. So we have a whole week of the Galactic Activation Portal Days and a uh, powerful time that we're in. Uh, we have a lot of assistance from the extra dimensionality of the record of days. So we're looking at today as the yellow overtone star. It's a five Lamotte. And that star energy is represented by these three words, beauty, art, and elegance. That's the star energy. And the overtone energy is the fifth tone. And it's represented by the words command, radiance, and empower. I like to look at that fifth tone as that top of the pyramid. It's the activator. So it works. That command, radiance, and power are very fitting words. And for the mantra then, for today, the yellow overtone star I empower in order to beautify, commanding art. I seal the store of elegance with the overtone of radiance. I'm guided by the power of intelligence. So that guiding power is the yellow warrior intelligence and the occult power today. That's the one we're in right now, that section. <laughs> it's the Skywalker, the blue Skywalker. And our ally for today is the blue monkey and our challenge teacher today is the mirror the white mirror so those are the ones we're working with on this day and this evening we're working with that occult energy with the skywalker uh so let's look a little closer at Lamont. it's a visionary aspect and it's about the illumination of humankind it's about opening that stargate We've got this portal day. We can go right through that stargate. So let's embrace these gifts of journeying, that pioneer spirit, and having that power to see beyond. As we let go of any dissonance or any self-doubt, we embrace these energies today. And then moving on tomorrow, uh, it's the sixth Maluk, the red rhythmic moon. That sixth tone is the rhythmic tone. And it's doubled on these days. So it's also the guide tone. Um, that sixth tone does that doubling <laughs> that way. And Maluk, the moon, is an artist aspect. So we're working with the wise use of rational mind and accepting spirit's direction. We're working with our contact with spirit and remembering what we came here to do. Universal mind is our mind. We use our telepathy. We listen. As we embrace these gifts tomorrow on Saturday, we are, we let go of any insensitivity or any attachment to omens. Let go of self-doubt. And then moving on to Sunday. Well, oh, wait a minute. Saturday is also Canada Day. I don't want to forget to mention that. That's an important day for Canada, and so we're doing that celebration with the red rhythmic moon, so that good moon energy. And then on Sunday, it's the white resonant dog. It's an artist aspect. It's about unconditional love and healing the pain of the past. So we embrace these gifts of having that contact with our spirit guides, that awareness of our destiny. A 
awareness of our past lives, reminding us of our loyalty to humankind. So let's let go of any fears or un- any unwise use of anger. No growling <laughs> with this white resonant dog. That resonant tone, that's top of the pyramid as well. It's the peak of the mountain. It's the middle tone. And very powerful. So a good day on Sunday, portal day as well. Moving on to Monday is the 8 June, the blue galactic monkey. And it's the full moon, very early in the morning, actually. It's 7.39 Eastern time, the full moon is. So if you're in the Pacific, it's... 439. <laughs> and it's in Capricorn, that full moon is. So uh, we'll get to play with that with this chewing energy. Let's look at chewing for a moment. The monkey. It's an artist aspect about balancing work and play. About paying attention to clarity of mind and that wide use of magical artistry. So lots of monkey plays for this full moon energy on... On Monday, we embrace these gifts of that innocence, that spontaneity, that ability to play and laugh and just enjoy ourselves and the people around us as we let go of any insensitivity or any jadedness or any resistance to compassion or any mistrust. So that's Monday and then Tuesday is Independence Day in this country. We celebrate that July the 4th. And uh, also a portal day. So it's a nine ebbs, a yellow solar human. And um, that, that, that human energy is a healing aspect. So we, we embrace uh, the work of the enlightenment of humankind and, and activating cosmic consciousness as we attune to spirit and embrace these gifts of being that human servant warrior. Embrace that gift of our abundance at the same time, and let's let's keep contact with other dimensions while we do that, and and then let go of any dependence on the analytical mind as we do that. So enjoy the celebrations of this day, the family gathering, whatever family we have, <laughs> and then uh, yeah, moving on to Wednesday, the ten Ben, the red planetary Skywalker. That Skywalker energy is a warrior aspect. So we're working with focus. We're striving towards self-elimination. We're working with clarity. We have those gifts of strength and that ability to bend dimensions. So it's multidimensional. Let's bend a few and let's let go of any resistance to faith. And let go of our belief in aloneness as well. <clears throat> then on Thursday, moving right along at the 11th East, White Spectral Magician. This is a visionary aspect, and it's about our illumination for others. It's about clarity of mind and purpose. So we embrace the gifts of that shaman energy, that jaguar medicine. Be that jaguar priestess woman and stay in integrity and work in accordance with divine will with this energy. And that spectral tone is about letting go of what no longer serves us. So let's have that clarity of mind and purpose as we do that and let go of any control or personal power issues as well. That's Thursday. And we come back on Friday 
It is a 12 man, the Blue Crystal Eagle. This is Penny's Galactic Activation Portal. Uh, so, and it's the Blue Crystal Eagle, the visionary aspect, and the work is about commitment to service, moving consciousness to source, and then reconnecting with all creation. So, embrace these gifts of independence and belief in ourselves. And let go of any feelings of despair or dissociation. Let go of that illusion of separation. So we'll talk about that some more next week when we come back. And um, so I'd like to change my hat right now and do a little bit of housekeeping as we are a listener supported radio program. It's all of us that make it happen. So each week we need $300 or so. And this week, these weeks in June are. $326.50. And we still need that. We still need from last week. And so we need $653 for BBS radio. And the way we make that happen is we go into our heart space, see what is ours to give, and then go to bbsradio.com. Click on radio station one. You'll see the schedule posted there on the home page. And that'll be scheduled for radio station one and two. So on radio station one is where you'll find at the eight o'clock hour in the on Fridays the hard news on Friday nights with Tara and Rama, this program. And on Thursdays, the day before that, the night at the round table with the panel is also on radio station one at the eight o'clock hour. So you can click on either one of those icons that are there. And that takes you directly to our account with DBS Radio, where you can make a donation in any amount using your bank card. And then we have a program on Saturdays that is at the 3.30 hour central time. And it's on Radio Station 2, so you'll find that under the Radio Station 2 schedule. And it is the true history, first tree of Nisera, and our galactic origins with Tara and Rama. And... uh Click on that icon there and make that donation. And as we all pitch in, we can get caught up as we do need to do. <laughs> and so we're grateful for your attention to this matter and lots of gratitude for your <clears throat> all, all your contributions. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And we're also assisting Tara and Rollin with their needs. And this week they have four bills that are due. Two need to be paid by Tuesday, and those two bills are 160 on, and I think that's the Verizon. I didn't, I forgot to write down which bill that was, but anyway, $160 bill on Monday, which they'll take it on Tuesday. Well, Tuesday's the 4th of July. These bills have to be paid by Wednesday because there's a grace, there's a little bit of grace there for being a holiday like that, so they need $300 for these two bills on Wednesday. And one of them is 136 for Windstar, and the other one's 160 for the phone. Anyway, so those need to be paid by Wednesday. And so thank you for paying attention to that and helping out at this time. They have a gas bill due next week and another $120 bill. I forgot to write that down. What that is. So, altogether, it's $432.25 in bill. So, just really critical to make sure that they got the 300 by by Wednesday to pay those two and then 
we can work on the rest of the rest of the week. And also the the news is that uh, Sapphire the car has gone over the rainbow. And <laughs> so what we need and what what's happening is um there's a con- there's a good chance that they can get this two thousand twelve Subaru that belongs to the neighboring mechanic next to E.T.'s mechanic shop is another mechanic and they work together all the time and this guy has a has a twenty twelve Subaru that uh he be, he could sell Tar and Rama and he needs um $5,000 for this car, and it's ready to go and it's in good shape. We've got 2000 in the GoFundMe, and we need $3,000 more to make it happen. And so we have a GoFundMe account, and we also have Tar and Rama's account. So I told you about the bills, so let me tell you how to access Tar and Rama's PayPal, and then I'll, I'll give you the address for the GoFundMe as well. So... <clears throat> As you want to make a uh, donation directly to Tara and Rama, you want to go to uh, Rama's PayPal account, and you access that at the website, which you'll find at rainbowroundtable.net. On the homepage, click on the menu grid. The menu drops down. At the bottom of that list is the donate link. Click on that. That takes you directly to the Rainbow Roundtable PayPal account where you can make a donation in any amount using your bank card. And also, the friends option is there as you put in the email for Ramos or that account. And so that email address is Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 9999 at hotmail.com. And as you exit access that friends option, then that just takes away the commercial charges. Either way, it's perfect. We're grateful for your contributions. Thank you for taking that action. <clears throat> and as you're taking that action, let Rama know that you sent something, and when you send it, that email for Rama, Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 999, at Comcast.net. And uh, let them know what you sent when you sent it and that you need it. The mailing address for Rama is Ram D. Berkowitz, R-A-M-D Berkowitz, B-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z, Post Office Box 280280. And that's in Santa Cruz, New Mexico. And the zip code in Santa Cruz, New Mexico is 87-567. And again, Santa Cruz, New Mexico, 87567. And now I'm going to give you the GoFundMe address. You can find that link on the website, I believe, or on one of the updates. But here's the address, GoFundMe.com forward slash FS. F is in Frank. S is in Steve. Forward slash and then I'm going to give you these words with a dash between each word. So help dash Rama dash pay dash four dash car dash repair dash and dash buy dash use dash a 
M dash A dash used dash car. So I'll say that as a sentence. Help Rama pay for car <clears throat> repair and buy a used car. <laughs> With all those dashes in there between all of those words. So there you have it. That's where the GoFundMe is. You can contribute there as well. Uh, we're grateful for all your contributions. We don't care how they come. We're gr- so grateful to receive them. 13, thank you. Honey in the heart. Long life. No evil. And I'm going to pass this talking stick. And the sea. Oh, my God. It's full of fireworks. You Watch out, you guys. I hope you don't tinder dry there because it's coming with all kinds of fireworks. They're all the rays of the universe. The purple ones are there and the sapphire blue and the platinum and then all the red and 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 yellow and green and all kinds of fireworks and a few bottle rockets. So <laughs> tied on to one of the fairies. Uh, there's dragon energy in it. And there's lots of unicorn magic happening. So unicorns are coming. All the little people, the Nanahunis, the gnomes, the, the dwarves, the elves, and, uh, well, and Bigfoot's there, too. So Sasquatch. So greetings, Sarah and Rama. Here comes this talking stick. It's celebratory. Watch out. Thank you, Rayburn. Greetings, everyone. In the hurry to get on, I think uh, a little bit of a correction on the where to send uh, to go to GoFundMe. The first part's fine, you know, GoFundMe.com, and then it's forward slash, and then there's just one small letter F as in Frank. There's no S there. It's just that. They sound similar over the phone. So it's just one small F as in Frank, and then another force forward slash, and then a hyphen between each word. Help Rama pay for car repair and buy a used car. So all of that is good. Rama, you want to say what you learned today? I got a text from... Keith Oberman, and he is saying that former President Trump is facing uh, 30 to 45 more charges. Criminal. Criminal charges. Criminal charges. Rudy Giuliani's in the mix. He's going to flip. That's what the word is. And a few other folks are going to flip, and uh, they're all going to squawk on Trump if they don't, because they don't want they want to get immunity. Jack Smith is doing what he's doing, and and he means business. Yeah. And uh, Tom and Sweet Angelique the cat sent me this picture of the. Horsehead Nebula that is sending out the sapphire blue rays of energy. It's very awesome to behold. <laughs> so the January 6th fiasco and the bathroom box fiasco are on the back burner compared to what we're looking at now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, yeah, so between, and that's not a small thing, Rama hardly ever gets connected with Keith Olbermann. Yeah. This... And Keith Olbermann is a faction three white knight. He got $50 billion a while ago. He did. Yeah. And he's doing all that he he's doing. He's helping all kinds of organizations that are helping all kinds of other people. Uh, like all the wealthy visionaries have been doing. And uh, Nasara now, everybody. Um, it's a very, very huge quantum leap forward today. It is. And Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. That's a five-day weekend. That's what we really got here, five-day weekend. And Happy New Year to Canada. Canada Day tomorrow. Happy New Year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow. All of these things are big things. And Star Sapphire. Yes, she's going over the rainbow. I love the color. The color has been really fun to hang out with. <laughs> right, Rama? Yes. You're going to miss your your shallowcraft. I am. <laughs> I don't, we didn't ask what color this new Subaru is. But no, a, we didn't. It's an Outback. I know that. Mm. Uh, that's going to be really nice to have. Uh, and... Let's just see what we can do to be generous so that Rama can get his shuttlecraft as soon as possible. Probably won't happen until Wednesday because of the holiday. But uh, that's five days. Let's see what we can do in five days. And, of course, we still have $652 or something to pay to BBS Radio. So <sighs> Happy New Year to all of us and... Uh, freedom's holy flame for all of us. And um, Rama's got something to play for us. This is Aurora Ray. Oh, let me read that message first. Yeah. It's a short little message talking about how she transformed her life with the Kundalini Yogic practices that have been around for centuries. And that's that's not her personal message, but... Oh, this is her personal activation story. I'm yes, but let me read her personal message first. I mean, oh. not her personal message. I mean, her regular message for everybody first. Let's do that. Remember that the awakening process is a natural part of humanity's evolution and that with the help of the Pleiadians, you can navigate this journey with grace, compassion, and love. Rama and I are solar beings from the Pleiades. I'm just going to say that's an outstanding uh, piece of information in the sense that the first landing party mission to Earth from the stars were the Pleiadians and they landed on the backside of the island of Kauai in the Hawaiian Islands. That's K A 
<coughs> U-A-I, Kauai. And that's a very special thing for the Kahuna elders. We haven't had a herd from them for a while. I wonder if maybe that Fran will bring them back on our Ashtar Legacy call. But anyway, the arrival of the Pleiadians, your ultimate guide to understanding and the awake, understanding the awakening process. I think that's probably, well, we've got only, it's only seven minutes, Rama. Mm. As a spiritual teacher, I have noticed an increase, an increase in the number of people who are experiencing a spiritual awakening. Many people have reported experiencing a wide range of physical and emotional symptoms that have left them feeling confused and disoriented. However, with the arrival of the Pleiadians, everything is starting to make sense. In this past, I will provide you, in this post, I'm sorry, I will provide you with an ultimate guide to understanding the awakening process and the role of the Pleiadians in the process. The Pleiadians are a group of beings that reside in the Pleiades star system, which is located in the constellation Taurus. These beings are highly advanced and have a deep understanding of the spiritual realm. They are known for their ability to channel high-frequency energy and have been visiting Earth for thousands of years. The Pleiadians are so often described as having a humanoid appearance with long blonde hair and blue eyes. They are very tall and have a graceful and elegant demeanor. Many people who have had contact with the Pleiadians report feeling a deep sense of love and compassion for these beings. What is the awakening process? The awakening process is a spiritual journey that involves an individual becoming aware of their true selves and their purpose in life. This process can be triggered by a variety of factors, including major life changes, conscious living, or a sudden spiritual awakening. During the awakening process, an individual may experience a wide range of physical and emotional symptoms including unexplained senses of joy, weightlessness, and a deep longing for something more. These are a natural part of the awakening process. That's as far as I'm going to go. We'll read the rest in the later part of our show. But let's uh, let's play what Aurora Ray has to share with us. Okay, Ron? Okay. It's coming on. <laughs> Hope it doesn't... Also on Sunday, she's having a training for all of us. Share with you how the Kundalini activation technique was able to shift my frequency so drastically that I moved from one reality to another. In this video, we'll put the theory aside and I'll take you behind the scenes and share an inspirational story with you so you can see for yourself how fast your whole life can change. I was a total mess after my mother abandoned me, my father passed away, my business had to close, and my relationship failed. I remember the darkness of those days. All I felt was sadness and pain. But despite all odds, here I am 
living the absolute life of my dreams. So stay tuned and watch the whole video. In the last four videos, we covered a lot of groundwork and I showed you how to quickly get started with the Kundalini activation technique. And I walked you through my entire blueprint. In case you haven't watched the first four videos yet, make sure you catch up because a lot of the information I've been giving away is more valuable and up-to-date than what you'll get in most paid courses. In this video, we're going to do something slightly different. I'm going to walk you through my own actual story and share how I use the Kundalini activation technique to deliver myself to higher consciousness, shift my frequency, and manifest all my desires. My father had just transitioned and I felt so broken. Besides losing my only parent, I also lost my business and my relationship failed at the same time. And to be honest, life seemed quite unbearable and meaningless those days. And in an attempt to survive somehow, I turned to my spiritual interests and hobbies to find light at the end of the tunnel. And I have told this story many times before, how I found a spiritual teacher who taught me how to meditate. And once I learned how to meditate correctly, I met Mother Gaia. She showed me another world, a different reality, and taught me wisdom and love I didn't know existed. The rest is history. I transmitted everything I learned from Mother Gaia in my books and many of my courses. But what I haven't talked about yet, however, is what kind of meditation that was that I practiced that made this even possible. It was a complete practice that utilized sound in specific magical and beautiful ways this meditation practice was different than any other I had tried before. It was just mesmerizing. The moment you begin the practice, you feel like you've shifted into a wonderland or something. Like the part in Mary Poppins where they all jump. Oh, it's buffering. Sorry. <laughs> where they all jump. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, thing of that beautiful landscape and you know this incredibly joyful new hobby shifted me into higher dimensions on a daily basis so because of my new abilities my first book was a bestseller that enabled me to change my life radically so here i was i had found a new parent mother gaia and i knew that I was taken care of, that I was loved, and I was able to create a new business that was in harmonic alignment and resonance with my soul. I was no longer inside a dark tunnel looking for the light. The light was everywhere. Everything was light. To this day, 15 years later, it's still my absolute favorite essential activation practice of all time. We all carry the spark of Christ consciousness within us. It is what enables us to ascend into a higher reality than the limited 3D matrix. This spark is the kundalini energy that lies dormant at the base of the spine. All we have to do is awaken it so it can rise up the chakras, interlocking and activating the DNA upgrade. Boom! I watch wonders come to me every day. Every day new roads open up for me. All the opportunities will flow to you through this technique and you will be equipped to utilize them. 
I used to meditate up to two hours, three times daily without any significant results. But the spiritual teacher I mentioned taught me different sets that enabled me to shift my frequency and conscious awareness in just a few minutes of practice per day. I had been stuck in that dark tunnel for three or four years before a fun practice of just 11 minutes a day changed my entire life within a few weeks. Now, I follow the exact same technique that I teach my students in my Ascension Activation training that's launched. It's the connection here with the internet. What can I say? It's a busy time on a Friday night, too. It's from now. You will be able to practice with me live the fastest and most magical technique to combine sound, meditation, breath work, mantra, mudra, and yoga together to create a quantum shift. You'll save 20 years of trying different techniques without getting significant results. This is the age of Aquarius. We want energy, and we want the experience. The key is to activate the Kundalini and awaken dormant DNA. And as Victor Hugo said, nothing is more powerful than an idea whose time has come. Now, as you can imagine, it's impossible for me to work with everyone. In fact, I like to keep my online courses relatively small to make sure that everyone can get the support and help they really need. So as much as I want to help everyone, I can only accept a small number of new students right now while still maintaining the level of support that's needed to provide the results that you want. So please understand this is a genuinely rare opportunity and spots will be granted on a first-come, first-served basis. This is literally the best program I've ever created. And I wouldn't be surprised if it's... Sells out in just a few hours. So keep your eyes open and jump on board as soon as registration opens. This is the number one technique I wish every human learns eventually. This is the practice you have been praying for. If you've made it this far through my six video series, then you're being called. How will you respond? In my next video, I'll give you some specific instructions that you can follow to make sure you get a spot in the new program. And I'll also share some more information about the Ascension Activation Training and how it's faster than any other techniques you might have seen before. With all that being said, thank you for watching this video and I'll see you in the next video. sounds like we should have played the next one mm -hmm. anyway really quickly it's July 2nd Sunday and um, I guess you can go to uh, um, contact at the galactic federation dot com mm -hmm. so we'll leave you with that everyone and we will also uh, be having ourselves taken to the conference call now. And uh, Rama?
720-716-7301 and the pin code is 353-863-POUND. So we'll see you there and we'll get the request for assistance to Caroline tomorrow morning so that people will get to see the whole thing on that site. And Rama, you'll add the information we learned today before we send it. Mm -hmm. Thank you, everyone, for all that you do and be with us today and every day. Shuttlecraft for Rama. (laughs) Okay. Namaste, everyone. See you on the conference. Aloha. Oh, we'll be right back here at BBS Radio Station 1. Uh, at the top of the very next hour. Okay, namaste.
Precious Heart, thank you for joining us for our weekly vlog. Paulus Athena, who is the goddess of truth and a member of the karmic board, 
is sharing with us today that the mass consciousness of humanity has shifted into a higher level of awareness and comprehension since Mother Earth's ascension into the initial frequencies of her new solar reality. This shift has created the space for the I am presence of every son and daughter of God to intuitively communicate divine truth more tangibly to our conscious minds from within the recesses of our heart flames. All of humanity is now developing the ability to clearly comprehend the sacred knowledge from the realms of illumined truth and the patterns of perfection for the new contingency plan that are flowing into the mental and emotional strata from Mother Earth's record keeper crystals that have recently been placed there by the mighty Elohim. Paula's Athena has revealed that even though this shift of consciousness and this sacred knowledge is more tangibly available to us, many people are still responding out of our old familiar patterns and habits. That is a very common situation. However, today, the beings of light associated with the emerald green flame of illumined truth want to remind us of a simple adjustment in our awareness that we need to practice daily in order to rise above the illusions of misinformation and disinformation flooding the planet at this time. This manipulative and erroneous misinformation and disinformation is a trick that unawakened humanity and the forces of imbalance are using to trap us and to keep us stuck in the obsolete beliefs that are based in separation and duality. Today, Paulus Athena is asking each of us to ask our I am presence to help us perceive the following information with new eyes and new ears. We have often heard the words, the truth will set you free. The complete statement, however, is know the truth and the truth will set you free. During this very powerful but confusing time, when misinformation and disinformation of every sort is flooding the airways, it seems as though it is almost impossible to know what the truth actually is. Fortunately, since Mother Earth's ascension into her new solar reality, humanity is experiencing a degree of assistance from the company of heaven that is more profound than we have ever known. This divine intervention is helping the I am presence of every son and daughter of God to assist us in comprehending what is truth and what is not truth. 
because of the shift of awareness that has now taken place within the masses of humanity. We are all able to apply the test that we once knew will help us to determine what is truth and what is not truth. This simple test is accurate to the letter and reflects the universal laws of creation. We have just forgotten about this test. The test is, the truth is always based in love. Any information, no matter what the source, that is not based in love is not the truth. If each of us will simply apply this simple test to the information being brought into our sphere of awareness each day, we will easily see that the confusing information and the misinformation and disinformation are not based in love. They are always based in fear, hate, anger, and the fallen consciousness of the forces of imbalance that are trying to manipulate you and me into believing that we are victims and that we need to retaliate against the other, meaning us against them. Mm-hmm. The beings of light have affirmed that the majority of people spreading the fear-based and hateful conspiracy theories and disinformation are people who are genuinely seeking the truth, but who have been tricked and deceived into being pawns of the forces of imbalance. Dear one, this means that the shift of consciousness that has now taken place within all of us has made it possible for us to recognize the heart-based truth of what is occurring on earth and our individual lives in waves we were not previously able to due to the unknown interference. Now, the key to implementing this shift of awareness and transcending the manipulation of the forces of imbalance is for each and every one of us to honestly and deliberately apply the test of truth to all of our beliefs and the information that is being brought into our sphere of awareness. This is not an easy process. One of the scariest things for people is to acknowledge that what we believe to be true is not truth. We must each be willing to perceive the errors in our beliefs without condemning and judging ourselves. Paulus Athena is flooding each of us with the flame of illumined truth. 
her legions from the temple of truth in the inner planes are very aware of the unique opportunity being provided to the sons and daughters of God evolving on earth during this monumental cosmic moment. All we have to do is ask them for their assistance as we evaluate our beliefs within the divinity of our heart flame. To comfort you during this process, whenever you make the decision to do it, Paulus Athena has asked me to share with you once again the quote from our Father Mother God that expresses the truth about you. You are a precious and beloved child of God. Your unique golden thread of life confirms your divinity and reveals the reality that you are an essential part of Earth's ascension in the light. This knowing will renew your faith in yourself and will remind you that you are a priceless human being. Once this realization truly registers in your heart and your conscious mind, you will never again say, what good could I possibly achieve? What value am I? What difference will one soul make? You will recognize those words to be a sacrilege. We are your father, mother, God. We created you and we have chosen to express some beautiful manifestation of life through you. You are destined to fulfill a portion of the glorious divine plan unfolding on planet Earth. Now is the time for you to release the unique perfume and music of your being to bless all life. The purity of your individual fragrance and keynote is unlike any other ever released by the evolving sons and daughters of God. Something sacred is hidden within your being that has never been known by another. It is an exquisite expression of life, which your I am presence alone can externalize. It is time for you to accept this divine truth. It is time for you to stand revealed as your mighty I am presence grown to full stature. And so it is. God bless you, dear one. I wish you a glorious week of empowering God's divine truth in every aspect of your life. Thank mm-hmm. you.
<clears throat> what other? Okay, here we go. Oh, the sound frequencies. Oh, yes. I wanted to say something about this. These are um, two hertz sound frequencies. What, can you tell me? 396 hertz and 172 hertz. 396 hertz and 172 hertz. What do they each stand for? Uh, just a second. Oops. Things are jumping. You can read, uh, Rama, you can come through there and read. 172. Lots louder than that. Got 172 hertz. Stress relief and crown chakra. 396 hertz. Miracles and positive vibration resonance. Okay, it's a combination of those two hertz. And we're going to do this for 33 minutes, starting now.
Greetings, Mother. Greetings. It's a lot of the most rigid one in the office of the Christ and only in the office of the Christ. We invoke the loving energies of Saint Germain and the Violet Flame. We ask at this time for peace to come into our hearts and into the whole world. War is over. We ask that true independence come to all people on earth and anywhere in this universe of Nebadon. We ask for the tune of oneness in our beingness. And I pass this talking stick to you, Mother. Greetings. Greeting, children of Ra. We are in most auspicious times. <laughs> it's all unfolding as it should. I Patty will say in this time where everyone is awakening to the divinity within. Time to listen to the heart, not the head. Think with the heart, feel with the head, as what we recall. <laughs> the art tremendous events unfolding with this full moon coming in as Jupiter is expanding many energies right now for lots of gold dust monoatomic gold is coming in in lots of waves that come with the solar flares been a little last day or so things quieted down Yet, it's just a moment as things heat up again. 
we can say what is pouring in is so unprecedented at this time. It is about the mass awakening, mass ascension that is unfolding. It may not seem that way at the moment, yet it is taking place. Hmm. It's about that phrase, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Gaia by Warmus has put out the clarion call across the galaxy. Everybody's here. This is the stage <coughs> where it's all unfolding. We've been handed the talking stick, you might say, by the universe itself as these baby boomers generation XYZ get it right this time. It's quite amazing to behold the events as we played these frequencies that open up the higher realms for these energies to bring in the awareness we're all connected no matter what species we happen to inhabit at this moment it's the diversity within love what Patty said, love is the truth. It's the answer of how we change this compassion and the wisdom to take the higher road. In this particular time, the mass awakening is happening very quickly, and there are more and more whistleblowers, so to speak, that are going to come forward more than 
you just saw on June 12th. Dr. Greer has interviewed many more folks that are coming forward with what they've seen. It's how we heal this story. We come in peace, not as an invasion fleet. We're here to collect our children, be on our way. Our moment here is how we share the future with you, which is our past. What has transpired in the last 12, 13,000 years? We've come full circle, as we've said many times. The truth needs to be told about what happened in Sumeria, Babylon, why we are the way we are, and the technologies our children left that are still being decoded, the advanced technologies that are here, Already, when we first came to see life forms, this is we speak of the last time around Nivru came into the sphere of influence with Earth, Ea. Many stories, and it's about healing this one. The ones you see that seemingly hold places of power and wear crowns on their heads and think not of anything except the treasures of the planet and things have changed in the last 12,000 years. Climate disruption is unfolding at an unprecedented rate along with our consciousness being raised, the conflict is coming to an awareness. Peace is the way how we heal this story. Compassion for what has occurred 
not all of it has been a bed of roses. And roses have thorns. Part of the cycle of the circle of life. Right now, this particular moment, our wayward children are very desperate to pull off events to shift the awareness away from mass consciousness awakening. This is why there is so much intense stuff about hmm, being judged by the color of your skin. And we can say in truth and love, we all are sons and daughters of the Most High. Whether we fly or swim or crawl or walk, whether on two or four legs or sixteen, how we come together in these council fires circles whether folks are aware of it or not all the beings known and unknown show up to help with the energies at this time it is an amazing moment to be here as we learn to let the old timeline go and focus on nature. Nature's God. All the fairies, elves, hobbits, dwarves, dragons come out the already same call on us. It's this nature of cooperation, the five elements work in cooperation with this. Is it no wonder we have five fingers, five toes, maybe six? <laughs> Some people do. Yes. Change. It's the order of the day. And it's a good thing. As we go through this full moon, into this 
so-called celebration of Independence Day. Hmm. What comes to mind is what is going to be read about what happened not Independence Day for the so-called original Aboriginal people of this land that were here before any of us showed up the mound builders it's these original stories of how we interact with each other the crystals, the water, the grass, the trees, the dragons, the wee folk. As you ask the dwarves to show you the treasures of this planet, I will show you. Hmm. It is like what you have seen in the movies. Lord of the Rings, huge caverns filled with crystals that shine with the light from within, just like how the sun in the center of the inner earth lights up the cities of Agartha and Sambala. It is the light from within our hearts connect with that light it's how we create miracles and magic Aurora Ray is teaching this with what she is sharing with the Kundalini Yoga Yogi Bhajan had it right Let's say the men in black and the ABC agencies got a little in the way here. And hmm, things happened, so to speak. And gotta send more love to even them. They're... Hmm, they're having to face the ultimate reality. A ride with us to Dracos. It's not just a joyride, let's put it simply. What has occurred here? We must understand, overstand, understand the stories of why we went from 12 strands of DNA down to two. Now we're getting our 12 strands back. How to use them 
That's the key to do it the right way. When you activate the Kundalini in ways that are not exactly, let's say, coming from a high heart place, shit happens and grace happens too. We'll call it like it is. Stuff happens and energies have to get realigned. And, hmm. Mother, the influence of this flash on that kind of um, cycle of experiencing can, uh, you might say, trip something into a higher way of A change of heart. Yeah. And that's what's occurring even as we're sort of waiting for the flash, yet it is a physical thing that is taking place in this local galaxy. And it is about how the sun gets its upgrade along with all of us mm-hmm. and we can give no dates yet you can certainly feel it it is hard to describe that sometimes throughout most of the day your hair feels like it's standing on end because the energies are so high. Oh, we better be on our way. <laughs> Miles to go before we sleep. <laughs> Mother, it's, it's, I feel like something big is going to pop here. It is. It's about us. Coming into that awareness, we're all one. When one is healed, all is healed. I think so. The, the financial controlling energies of the old is that we're breaking free of that. They're having to deal with the so-called karmic board, which is their own shadow having to look them in the eye. Shadow work is what we do. Patty was talking about balance now. Yeah. It's that balance that... Um, it's been so out of balance. Lady the needs Master of the many outweigh the needs of the few, Mother. Oh, we better be on Thank you. Amy has an epistle. (laughs) Greetings in the light of the most radiant one. Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. Adonai, Sabayel. Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. Adonai, Sabayel. Kadosh, 
crickets outside. kind of crystal cavern and I was seeing ruby and emeralds and it reminded me of St. Germain's inner retreat and only there were rubies and emeralds and um, something uh I can't remember. Rode a crossite. Wow. <laughs> and um, I'm not sure what what part of the planet this was, except the crystals were just glowing, and they were just sending out this pulse like a heartbeat. And it was, was it in Brazil? I'm not sure. It was hot. I remember that in the cavern. It was hot. Well, in Arkansas, you can go on the. You can go. Remember, we went down in the caverns. Yeah. When we were there, was that the place? Could have been. Whole don't, bunch of crystals in that place. I don't know if they have rubies and emeralds. <laughs> Well, they remember that store? Mm-hmm. There was a store where they had uh, glass uh, windows with all kinds of crystals behind them all around the store. Yeah. I don't remember then exactly, but I remember those blue angel crystals. Those were gorgeous. Yeah. But rhodochrosite, you haven't had any of that for a long time. No. Well, maybe you have to go hunting around. But you got to get your car fixed first, right? Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Call in all kinds of good assistance for getting this vehicle. That's the talking stick. Needs that for getting to the talking stick with the king and folks. Yeah. All right. All right. Yes, my... Amy show is coming up here. Um, all right, where are we? 
here we go. Um, no, that's not it. Just a minute here. I'm going to have to start this over.
In California, a state task force has released its final report proposing reparations for the harms done to black families due to slavery, segregation, and racial discrimination. The panel's asking California lawmakers and Governor Gavin Newsom to approve monetary compensation to black residents for mass incarceration, racist policing, housing discrimination, health care inequalities, and environmental racism. Cheryl Grills, a member of the California Reparations Task Force, noted the report was released Thursday morning, just as the Supreme Court struck down affirmative action. I would encourage the Supreme Court to read the interim report. I would encourage them to read the final report and to understand that the legacy of enslavement, the ongoing harms are with us to this very day. And so this country is disingenuous. First, they used race to exclude us. And now they're refusing to use race to include us. The wife of Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito leased land to a fossil fuel company for oil and gas exploration. Around the same time, the firm stood to benefit from a major environmental case before the Supreme Court. The Intercept reports Justice Alito did not recuse himself from the case, even though his family stood to profit from its outcome. Alito ended up writing the five to four majority opinion in Sackett versus Environmental Protection Agency, which gutted protections for U.S. wetlands under the Clean Water Act. At the time, Martha Ann Baumgartner Alito, his wife, had an agreement with the firm Citizen Energy Three to earn revenue from any oil and gas produced on her land in Oklahoma, which she inherited from her late father. This follows the bombshell report in ProPublica that found Justice Alito took an undisclosed luxury fishing vacation with Republican mega-donor Paul Singer in 2008, then later ruled in Singer's favor in several cases. Singer is a major donor to the Manhattan Institute, a Republican think tank that supports blocking student debt relief. Members of the Debt Collective had demanded Alito recuse himself from today's Supreme Court ruling on President Biden's plan to give 40 million student borrowers up to $20,000 each in debt relief. We'll have more on student debt and the Supreme Court later in the broadcast. Mexico's health ministry says at least 112 people have died in the past two weeks as an unprecedented heat wave drove temperatures as high as 50 degrees Celsius or more than 120 degrees Fahrenheit. Residents of Monterey say they've been forced to limit their time outdoors. I work in construction and it's really bad. We hydrate with water and rest for 15 minutes and then we go back to work again. We do that every hour. Stifling heat and humidity are continuing across Texas and southeastern states where officials say extreme temperatures have killed at least 14 people. Farther north, more than 100 million people are under air quality alerts again today as thick smoke from Canadian wildfires drifts east. Detroit, Washington, D.C. and New York City ranked among the six worst cities in the world for air quality this morning, though forecasters predict some relief from hazardous air over the July 4th holiday weekend. 
Former Vice President, 2024 Republican presidential hopeful Mike Pence made a surprise visit to Ukraine Thursday, meeting in Kyiv with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. Pence's visit comes after Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis, and other Republican candidates suggested scaling back or halting USA to Ukraine. Pence said, unlike his rivals, he would ensure the continued flow of weapons and ammunition. Because we'll make it clear to Russia, to China, and any other nations in the world that would seek to redraw international lines by force. That the free world will not stand for it. The free world will stand together for freedom. CNN reports the Biden administration strongly considering approving the transfer of cluster munition warheads to Ukraine. The weapons are banned under the Convention on Cluster Munitions, which has been signed by U.S. allies, including the U.K., France and Germany. Ukraine, Russia and the United States never signed the treaty. Meanwhile, Human Rights Watch reports it's uncovered new evidence of Ukraine's indiscriminate use of banned anti-personnel landmines. Russia's also laid mines, killing and injuring civilians. Unlike Russia, Ukraine is a signatory to the 1997 Ottawa Treaty, which comprehensively bans anti-personnel mines. All 31 NATO member states have signed the treaty, except the United States. In France, over 400 people were arrested Thursday as thousands of protesters took to the streets nationwide for a third consecutive day, angered by the police killing of 17-year-old Nahelen. French riot police were deployed in multiple cities with violent clashes reported in the Parisian suburb of Nanterre, Nahel's hometown, where he was fatally shot Tuesday after being pulled over for allegedly breaking traffic rules. Nahel was an only child of Algerian and Moroccan descent who was raised by a single mother. He worked as a delivery driver and was described by his grandmother as a good, kind boy. This is Karim Akatim, a local official from the Parisian suburb of Urban Mesnil. Young Nael, his honor was saved thanks to the camera. If the cameras hadn't been there to record, one could have manipulated his profile. Oh, he's already had trouble with the police in the past. Oh, his background is a bit sketchy. No, this is a 17-year-old young man who was killed by police. That should be recognized. The United Kingdom Accord has ruled the British government's plan to deport certain asylum seekers to Rwanda, though they're not from there, is illegal under national and international law. The decision Thursday overturned a previous ruling from December that was widely condemned by human rights advocates. This is British Judge Ian Burnett. There is a real risk that persons sent to Rwanda will be returned to their home countries where they face persecution or other inhumane treatment when, in fact, they have a good claim for asylum. In that sense, Rwanda is not a safe third country. In Iraq, hundreds of protesters briefly stormed the Swedish embassy in Baghdad Thursday in response to the burning of a Quran outside a mosque in Stockholm Wednesday, which marked Eid al-Adha, a major Islamic holiday. Swedish media identified the person who burned the Quran as a refugee from Iraq. The act drew widespread condemnation from Muslims around the world. The Turkish president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, warned this could pose another challenge to Sweden's bid to join NATO. Turkey and Hungary remain the only nations blocking Sweden's path to NATO membership.
Florida jury has found former Parkland School Resource Officer Scott Peterson not guilty on all 11 criminal charges he faced for allegedly failing to protect students during the 2018 mass shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland. 17 people were killed in the massacre, another 17 injured with wounds from the gunman's semi-automatic assault rifle. Peterson faced charges of felony child neglect, culpable negligence, and perjury after video showed he remained positioned outside the school for over 40 minutes as approximately 75 gunshots went off. Defense attorneys successfully argued Peterson was unable to tell from which direction the shots were coming from. New York City Mayor Eric Adams and the City Council have reached an agreement on a $107 billion city budget that proposes cuts to social and education programs for incarcerated people at Rikers Island Jail Complex. In the final weeks of negotiations, Adams vetoed a package of bills that would have expanded New York's rental assistance program, a move that was widely condemned by activists as the city faces a worsening housing crisis with over 100,000 people living in city shelters for the first time, including tens of thousands of asylum seekers. On Wednesday, Adams was confronted over skyrocketing rents by housing advocate Jeannie Dubnow during a community forum. Okay, first, if you're going to ask a question, don't point at me and don't do, be disrespectful to me. I'm the mayor of this city, and treat me with the respect that I deserve to be treated. I'm speaking to you as an adult. Don't stand in front like you treated someone that's on the plantation that you own. And civil rights leader Christine King Ferris, the last living sibling of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., has died at the age of 95. Christine King Ferris graduated from Spelman College in 1948, earned two master's degrees from Columbia University. She played a prominent role in the Selma to Montgomery March for Voting Rights in 1965 and the March Against Fear in Mississippi the following year. After Dr. Martin Luther King's assassination in 1968, Christine King King Ferris established the King Center for Nonviolent Social Change along with King's widow, Coretta Scott King. In a statement honoring her legacy, the center said that Dr. King's older sister, Christine King Ferris's life, quote, overflowed with acts of service, love, and education that inspired the world for nearly a century. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. When we come back, the Supreme Court guts affirmative action, ruling Harvard and the University of North Carolina's programs considering race and college admissions are unconstitutional, but allows military academies to continue using affirmative action. Stay with us.
by divide and dissolve. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Today, we spend the hour looking at new U.S. Supreme Court decisions that will have far-reaching implications in the lives of millions of people. We begin with the court's landmark ruling Thursday that gutted affirmative action when it ruled Harvard and the University of North Carolina's programs considering race and college admissions are unconstitutional. The six to three decision overturns longstanding precedent. The court stopped short of barring legacy admissions and will allow military academies to continue using affirmative action. Writing for the majority, Chief Justice John Roberts assailed race-conscious admissions as elusive, imponderable, and opaque, ruling they violate the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson, the first black woman appointed to the court, wrote in her dissent, the decision, quote, is truly a tragedy for us all. She added, with let them eat cake obliviousness, Today, the majority pulls the ripcord and announces colorblindness for all by legal fiat. Meanwhile, Justice Clarence Thomas, who's now the longest serving justice on the conservative majority court and is African-American, sided with the majority and read his concurrence from the bench saying, quote, even in the segregated South where I grew up, individuals were not the sum of their skin. While I am painfully aware of the social and economic ravages which have befallen my race and all who suffer discrimination, I hold out enduring hope that this country will live up to its principles so clearly enunciated in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States that all men are created equal, are equal citizens, and must be treated equally before the law. That was Justice Clarence Thomas Thursday. During the oral arguments for this case, Justice Thomas questioned North Carolina State Solicitor General Ryan Park, who represented the University of North Carolina. I didn't go to racially diverse schools, um, but there were educational benefits. And I'd like you to tell me expressly when a parent sends a kid to college that they don't necessarily send them there to have fun or feel good or anything like that. They send them there to learn physics or chemistry or whatever they're studying. So tell me what the educational benefits are. This comes as PBS Frontline examined Justice Thomas's stance on affirmative action from his time in law school to Thursday's ruling. Frontline reported on how Thomas arrived at Yale Law School as one of 12 black students and interviewed his classmate John Bolton, former national security advisor. He believed that people assumed he was there as a as a beneficiary of affirmative action and it graded on it. He has this feeling of home around these white students who he senses question his presence at Yale. How is it that you, not just you, Clarence Thomas, but you, all the black students are here? Is it because of merit or is it because of affirmative action? Today, we begin today's show with a roundtable discussion on the Supreme Court's restriction of consideration of race and college admissions, effectively overturning decades of court precedent. 
Wisdom Cole, NAACP National Director of Youth and College Division, is with us. Janelle Wong is Director of Asian American Studies, Professor of American Studies in Government and Politics at the University of Maryland. Her piece for the Los Angeles Times, Affirmative Action, Isn't Hurting Asian Americans? Here's Why That Myth Survives. And Mariana Jose, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, founder of Futuro Media, host of Latino USA, co-host of the podcast In the Thick. We welcome you all to Democracy Now!, Wisdom Cole, let's begin with you. The Supreme Court has gutted affirmative action in colleges and universities around the country. Oh, well, not in military academies. But can you overall respond? You know, this was a devastating decision. You know, a rogue court bowed down to an extremist minority influence that's going to impact the next generation of thought leaders and Americans. You know, in this moment in time, we need to see our colleges, universities, and even corporations commit to diversity no matter what. And if you can talk further about the significance of this decision and what has puzzled many, that while Chief Justice, who read the decision out for the majority, um, said that this doesn't apply. It cannot apply anymore to colleges. This actually, by the way, goes into effect in 2028, uh, 25 years after an affirmative action decision in 2003 uh, that was authored by the Republican Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. Um, that this applies to colleges and universities, but not to military academies where he saw value in officer diversity, the idea of fine for the barracks, but not the boardroom? Yeah, you know, the same value that we have in making sure that we are having diversity in our military, we have to have that same value for higher education, because oftentimes higher education is the access to the halls of power, right? We want to make sure that our colleges and universities truly reflect America when it comes to diversity of thought. You know, we need to make sure that we have some of the most diverse minds thinking about the best solutions to some of the most difficult problems that we are facing in America today. And if we are removing that access for diverse students to have that space in place in higher education, then we are not meeting the mark and we're going to miss the moment and we're not going to be able to solve the problems that are coming our way. You wrote in social media, our future depends on racial equity and diversity in higher education. The SCOTUS affirmative action decision has put us on a path to resegregate our educational system. Can you explain? You know, this decision is going to have impacts for generations to come. And when we think about the way in which young people have the options and choices to go to different colleges and universities, we shouldn't think that the gutting of affirmative action is now an influence or a push for young people just to go to HBCUs. Yes, we need to highly invest in our HBCUs and our MSIs and ensure that young people have access to those places and spaces. But young people need to have options and choices to go to whatever universities they want to see. I think it's important for us to understand that we cannot be on a path to resegregate higher education as we know it today, because that's effectively rolling back the rights that are being fought for each and every single day. I turn to Janelle Wong, uh, who's Director of Asian American Studies, Professor of American Studies in Government and Politics at the University of Maryland. You wrote a piece with the great writer Viet Thanh Nguyen titled Affirmative Action Isn't Hurting Asian Americans. Here's why that myth survives. Now, this is extremely significant for people to understand where this case came from. If you can talk about the Students for Fair Admissions, this done supposedly to 
stop discrimination against Asian Americans. Well, this is an extremely disappointing ruling, especially because, as you say, a false narrative about an Asian American penalty was used to target one essential tool, affirmative action, that helps open up doors to diversity and opportunities for education. And that is the group suing Harvard is intentionally to Asian Americans to provide cover for its supremacist agenda. And there's evidence that the person who brought this case, Edward Bloom, actually went to an open dinner and said, I need to find an Asian American plaintiff. And many Asian Americans, certainly not all, but too many, fell for the trap. Civil rights lawyer Mark Rosenbaum gets it right. He's blind, is blind to systemic racism. The truth is, at the lower courts found no evidence of racial discrimination against Asian Americans. One single Asian American student testified to racial discrimination. One single Asian American came forward because they were rejected due to affirmative action. It is important to keep in mind that despite the headline, the consideration of race in admissions, not and in totality. Affirmative action is gutted, severely weakened, but colleges can ask students to discuss in their essays how race shapes their lives. This is permissible. So it's also important, I think, that the ruling also applies only to higher education context, not to other programs such as minority contracting programs. I want to go to Christine Lee. Uh, Democracy Now! reached her last night. She just graduated from Harvard in May. She was the head of the Harvard Korean Association, which is one of 25 Harvard student and alumni organizations that filed an amicus brief in support of college admissions policies that foster diversity. My name's Christine Lee. I'm a recent graduate from Harvard College and former co-president of the Harvard Korean Association, or HKA. I assumed leadership of HKA while the amicus brief preparations were underway with the Legal Defense Fund through the NAACP. I already felt rather strongly, I think, about the importance of building diverse educational environments and understanding how affirmative action played a critical role in that. But I think seeing the collective efforts from other student organizations and advocating for this cause was the greatest privilege. I only speak to my own experiences as one student, an Asian American woman at Harvard, but I can say with full confidence that those who subscribe to the widely publicized view of what it means to quote unquote deserve a position at an Ivy League institution, what it means to champion quote-unquote merit-based admissions. They haven't met the incredible students, especially students of color. I was lucky enough to call my peers at Harvard. I I mean, I didn't know the test scores or GPA of every student I sat next to in class or every student I ate meals with in, in the dining hall. But what I did know was that their unique stories, the stories that they had to share, they enhanced my own life and journey in a very singular way. And I truly believe that universities have something of an obligation to create rich, diverse, 
unique learning environments in this way. And I also believe that's an obligation not only to their students and their university, but to the greater public as well. I think this is on my mind a lot more just as a recent graduate, but I can imagine the implications that the recent Supreme Court decision will have reaching into the professional world as well. Legal experts will definitely know far more on this subject than me, but I can't help but feel like there's a likely danger of us seeing fewer people of color going into academia as professors, fewer people of color going into medicine, law, environmental policy, and I worry that those vital perspectives are in danger of fading away. If not right away, then definitely over time. You were just listening to and watching Christine Lee, uh, just graduated from Harvard University, former head of the Harvard Korean Association. And Professor Wong, what's so interesting about this is that really her comments concur with the majority of Asian Americans in the country. Uh, Pew poll just found um, that the majority of Asian Americans favor affirmative action. So talk more deeply about who the organization is that brought this lawsuit that ended up in the Supreme Court. The organization is called Students for Fair Admissions. And that organization is led by Ed Bloom, who is a conservative white male who has gone on the attack for race conscious programs beyond affirmative action. Affirmative action is one of a suite of policies that seek to uh, consider race to ensure racial equality. So Ed Bloom successfully brought a case um, against uh, the Shelby v. Holder case, which gutted the Voting Rights Act. He, he has also tried to undermine immigrant voting rights. And so he had brought this case, the um, case against affirmative action through the uh, the University of Texas, and he plaintiff there with Abigail Fisher, a white woman. When that was not successful, he purposely sought out an Asian American plaintiff, again, because it provides not only cover for his white supremacist agenda, but also because Asian Americans, uh, there is a narrative about Asian Americans being a penalty in college admissions. That narrative is very powerful, even though it was adjudicated early in the lower court and the courts with hundreds and hundreds of pages of evidence, statistical modeling and testimony from Asian American students who courted affirmative action at the lower courts found there was no intentional discrimination uh, against Asian American students. I want to bring Maria Inahosa into this discussion. Um, uh, Chief Justice John Roberts uh, said for too long universities have concluded wrongly that the touchstone of an individual's identity is not challenges um, bested skills built or lessons learned, but the color of their skin. Our constitutional history does not tolerate that choice. Um, you have Justice Sonia Sotomayor, the court's first Latina, writing in dissent, the decision rolls back decades of precedent and momentous 
progress. And of course, you have um, uh, Justice Jackson um, saying, though she had to recuse herself from the Harvard case because of her involvement with Harvard, uh, weighed in in the North Carolina case, um, talked about um, deciding that um, uh, she wrote, uh, let me see if I can find uh, her quote. She said, deeming race irrelevant in law does not make it so in life. Maria, your response. Uh, Jamie, this is, um, it is a historic day in our country, and yet it is not shocking. Um, in many ways, as I'm listening to, to the reporting that's coming up, I mean, and this, this is for me kind of writ large, which is actually how this Supreme Court will be devalued in the rest of the country because of decisions like this. That's a, that's a broad structural issue, right, where you have a country that says the Supreme Court does not represent us or does it represent the majority opinion in the United States? And so that to me is, is of concern because as you know, I wasn't born in this country and there's this kind of images for immigrants and we hold the Supreme Court in this kind of esteem. Well, we're seeing through that. As you point out, the fact that they're saying it's okay for the barracks, take your bodies and use them for war. By the way, if you're an immigrant or even undocumented, the possibilities of getting into the military um, ease your road in this country. So the pathway to military is completely open and the pathway to legacy, which is essentially, if we're going to be honest in our country, white supremacy. Now, I'm a professor, been in academia for a decade now, and I will tell you, the data shows uh, is that uh, Latinos and Latinas have the highest rate of going from high school to college at this point. Uh, so there's there's hard data there, and I have met such presidents. Amy have told me well, we have a financial plan for the you know this small independent liberal arts college in the Midwest. And I was like, well, what's your financial plan? We're making sure that we're getting every single that you know that we can to come here. It's a market decision. It's a business decision. Colleges and universities are going to be faced with because look at the demographics of our country. It is unsustainable. You're only accepting white legacy students. That's not sustainable. So I'm trying to bring a different analysis. I understand everything, the shock, the horror, the disgust, the rage, the disappointment. But I'm also, I want to make sure that our kids understand that this is not, cannot stop them. Cannot stop them. All of us on this, on this call have, and you as a white woman, Amy, we have gone through not just microaggressions, frontal aggressions. It makes us stronger. It makes us understand exactly what we represent in this country, what kind of country we want to have. So this, I'm going to quote Dolores Huerta, right? This is a moment to organize. This is a moment to build solidarity. And this is a moment to tell our young people, you got this. We are behind you. And by the way, you have power in this conversation. Do not cede your power. Do not give up because we need you. And it's very important for me to continue to reiterate this message. Do not take this as a defeat. We've been defeated so many times in this country, and we're not going to give up. There's no other option. We cannot give up and just say, okay, affirmative action. What, what do we give up on what? We got to double down because the future of this country, as we know, and I think that this is central to this decision, is increasingly not white. That 
is at the, 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 the core of what we're talking about. But that's just data. That is the future of the Mariana Jose, you've also um, been very vocal about the lack of diversity in newsrooms. After the Supreme Court affirmative action decision, the award-winning uh, journalists reveal investigative journalist Aura Bagado said on Twitter, universities will soon look like newsrooms. If you can respond to that, and also I keep um, going back to this issue of John Roberts saying we're going to carve out military academies because there is value in officer diversity and this whole issue of uh, they can go to the barracks, but when it comes to the boardroom and other places and civil society in this country, uh, they're going to stand firm, these conservative justices, and say no to affirmative action. Right in front of us, Amy. You know, there isn't, we don't have to pull the wool off of anybody's eyes. They are saying it clearly. And to me, doubling down on the question of legacy, which is legacy is fine, but and, uh, legacy is fine. It's so clear what is happening, and this is why, again, the horror, not just disappointment, the horror of this Supreme Court, right? Think about Sonia Sotomayor and Kitanji Brown having to, to sit with these so-called colleagues. And yes, everybody, by the way, should watch that frontline documentary on Clarence Thomas, because and I understood that people, you know, I was the first Latina hired at NPR, Right. I was one of very few Latinas at Barnard College, where I'm now a professor. Um, I have been that one, that first one. And so that kind of what are you doing here? Always. It's just been a, a, a part of my life. And again, for the young people. So what you do is you you internalize that and you say, and this is part of my struggle. Right. To be the best possible. Again, I know people don't want to hear this, so you know you've got to be the best possible, but that is the name of the game in the United States of America where white supremacy is trying to hold on as much as possible. And for Latinos and Latinas, very important. And this is a very important moment for their understanding of where they put their alliances, right? It's not, and, and we have to talk about this, where Latinos and Latinas can easily identify as white because it's, it's privilege. This is a moment to understand solidarity and what this means for the future of our country, working together for true representation. Wisdom Cole, um, <clears throat> if you can talk about the kind of organizing that's going around and now, I mean, with these affirmative action decisions, you always see NAACP out in front of the Supreme Court. Um, you have, for example, the University of California that outrolled affirmative action years ago. Uh, people of color, particularly uh, the Latinx population and the black population, um, their representation being gutted in the UC college system. How are people organizing right now? You know, I myself am a graduate of the University of California, Santa Cruz, and we consistently saw less and less black folks um, enrolled in the universities, but even those who were enrolled in those universities um, were not graduating, right? You know, the retention level and the work necessary to ensure that young people of color, young black people were retained at these institutions of power um, was not there. And so we had to institute student outreach programs where we made sure that we were actually working to outreach to young people who are interested in coming to the university, but also making sure there were supports on campus to ensure that they stay at that university and are supported and not facing the micro and macro aggressions that happen at these predominantly white institutions. 
So across the nation now, we are really pushing and telling universities and colleges to commit to diversity no matter what. That looks like instituting outreach and retention programs. That looks like looking at debt-free college options. That looks like making sure that the student population is aware of what they are doing to contribute to white supremacist culture and creating a society and creating a campus culture that is truly about diversity, equity, inclusion. You know, in this moment in time, young people are looking for solutions and looking for answers. Young people are scared. Young people are thinking about their future. They're thinking about their um, nephews or thinking about their sisters or brothers, the generations that are to come who are going to be entering those college spaces in the next couple of years. In this moment in time, we have to set up the structures that are going to allow those young people not just to survive on campus, but to thrive on campus. And we have to all do our part. And so that means making sure that we are working hand in hand with these universities making sure there's guidance and making sure that young people are at the front of this movement and that we are uplifting the voices of the most marginalized. And Wisdom, what about the issue of class or income as a factor in admission? And this goes directly with the decision today of the Supreme Court on student debt. You know, we have to understand that the decision around affirmative action and decision around Biden's student loan forgiveness program are not mutually exclusive. You know, if the Supreme Court strikes down Biden's uh, student loan plan today, you know, like I said, effectively, we are in a pathway to resegregate uh, education as we know today, but also declare that the American dream is dead. You know, higher education is the pathway to economic mobility in this country. And so it's absolutely important that we understand all the factors that contribute to a young person entering into higher education today. We have to make sure that there is pathways to ensure that they are successful and not barriers that are going to deter them from being a part of these institutions. You know, again, we want to make sure that we are promoting diversity of thought. We are promoting diversity of ideology. We're promoting diversity of experience. All of those things are necessary to contribute to a thriving society in America today. We have gone through so much over the past couple of years. We can't forget all the things that we learned in 2020 um, facing the, heart of the horrors of the murder of George Floyd, of Breonna Taylor, of Ahmaud Arbery. You know, America is in a period of time where we are in a social awakening. It's important that we continue that work and not roll back those rights that we have received and making sure that we are promoting young people in those places and spaces to ensure that they have access to the halls of power. I'm Cole. I want to thank you for being with us, NAACP National Director of Youth and College Division, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Maria Inahosta, founder of Futuro Media. And we want to thank Professor Janelle Wong, Director of Asian American Studies at University of Maryland. Next up today, the Supreme Court is issuing two more decisions on student debt and whether businesses with religious objections can refuse to offer their services for same-sex weddings. Well, look at how both cases were brought by right-wing groups that are based on questionable evidence. Stay with us.
I Love by Randy Newman. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Today, the Supreme Court issues two more decisions, including one brought by a Colorado wedding website designer who wants to be allowed to refuse service to same-sex couples. Lori Smith filed a lawsuit with help from the right-wing Alliance Defending Freedom as part of the group's ongoing attacks on the rights of LGBTQIA people. Smith said a Colorado law that bars businesses from refusing to sell a product to gay couples is a violation of her right to free speech as someone who opposes same-sex marriage. But new reporting shows Smith never once made a wedding website, and a key document in the case may be fake. For more, we're joined by Melissa Girogrant, staff writer at The New Republic. Her new piece is headlined, The Mysterious Case of the Fake Gay Marriage Website, The Real Straight Man and the Supreme Court. Okay, Melissa, lay it out for us. Tell us what you discovered about the case the Supreme Court is ruling on today. Just to start there. Um, so in 2016, this website designer named Lori Smith, whose business is called 303 Creative, she believed that a Colorado anti-discrimination ordinance that protects people from discrimination, among other things, um, from discrimination based on sexual orientation, she believed that that precluded her from entering into the wedding website business. Now, she has never created a wedding website for anybody, and including a same-sex couple. So in the course of making this argument, she claimed you know, two things. One, that this law meant that she couldn't post an announcement on her website saying that she wouldn't make these websites for any couple that wasn't in a biblical marriage that she approved of. And additionally, in a later filing in that original case in 2016, she claimed that an actual same-sex couple sought to have her build a website for them. That an inquiry, it doesn't seem that it was a legitimate inquiry, but it remained in the case. It came up in the district court ruling that ruled against her. It came up in their appeal. It's even been included in filings to the Supreme Court and was referenced by her attorneys, Alliance Defending Freedom, or Christian Nationalist Law Project. They said, hey, she's had an actual inquiry. So, this is a case that you know has some relevance. But before this inquiry became uh, a subject of debate, it hadn't really been reported out until um, I was able to reach the person who allegedly made the inquiry. Um, and I want to point out, this is well. unbelievable. It's like seven years later, right, Melissa? I mean, yeah. this case was brought in 2016. You're a general reporter, and you just decided to look at the documents of this case the Supreme Court is now weighing. Yeah, I, I was sort of like shrugging and shifting in my seat because like, yes, I've covered the Supreme Court. I've covered cases that I spent months of my life on. This is one that, you know, came up in the course of reporting on anti-LGBTQ issues, which is mostly what I do. And, you know, I just saw this phone number in a filing and I thought, well, let's call this guy. Right. Well, let's see if this is a, a real inquiry. And, you know, again, like, Wait, you call the guy who supposedly, according to the documents, is the guy who asked her to make a website for his gay wedding. So but there was a name, there was a phone number and address and you call the man in Colorado. Yeah. Uh, well, he's not in Colorado. I learned that right away. Um, you know, his it is his real a real person's name. It is a real person's phone number. It is a real person's email address. It is a real person's website. But when I called that real person, and it wasn't hard to reach him. He was happy to talk to me. He's a very reasonable, nice guy who had no idea 
that his information was in this case, and he had never heard about it from another reporter. No one had ever called him to check this inquiry out, which would suggest also that the attorneys in this case did not reach out to him to verify this. It suggests that, you know, once it made it to the Supreme Court, it was just sort of established as assumed fact that there was a genuine inquiry here. Um, and again, just to underline, like, this is not the sole piece of evidence for bringing the case on, but the case itself was already about fake, like, a maybe someday a gay couple would ask her to make a website for them. But let's be clear just, on this man. Yeah. Uh, he is married to a woman, has a child, and had no plans yeah. to have a gay marriage, and never, he said, uh, submitted any requests to this woman who doesn't make marriage websites to make him a marriage web, a gay no. marriage website? Not at all. And, you know, I looked into his background. It seems credible. I've been talking with him on and off since the, the first phone call I made to him on Tuesday. Uh, you know, he... He's appalled by this. You know, he is progressive. He supports abortion rights. He was horrified to hear that the group that was bringing this was one of the groups that helped undo Roe versus Wade. Um, he doesn't want any part of the spotlight. And he had no idea that he had been pulled into this case, that somebody posing as him, in truth, pulled him into this case. Is there any evidence that the Supreme Court has found what you did on Tuesday? I have no idea. Honestly, you know, um, I have to give some credit to Justice Sotomayor, who in oral argument got into the nitty gritty of, well, hold on, hold on. Like, what websites are you forbidden from making? Like, let's look into your actual brief. And it was through that question that I found this inquiry in the brief. The inquiry had come up in oral argument. It wasn't a subject of back and forth in the filings ahead of oral argument. So, you know, I don't know that this inquiry would have ever been decisive in what the Supreme Court decides. But for me, it's just it's so indicative of all of the questions and concerns people have had about this court so, and the legitimacy of this court. And so tell us what this group, the Alliance Defending Freedom or ADF, is that brought this case that's now being weighed by the Supreme Court. So ADF started in the 1990s. Um, they are really invested in this project that we would now call Christian nationalism. They believe that Christians have a right to decide the way that this country and its laws function. They are, you know, fundamentally opposed to the separation of church and state. And so a lot of their cases kind of came from that place. Um, they've been very successful in getting cases before the Supreme Court. People may have uh, heard of the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, which is kind of similar to this one. Um, but at least in that case, there was an actual gay wedding and there was an actual gay wedding cake that was at issue. Like here, there is no wedding. There is no website. Um, it, it's troubling that a group that's pushing this agenda, uh, attacking queer and trans people, you know, they're behind the anti-trans laws that we've seen pop up by the dozens across the country over the last few years. If they, all they have to bring is, you know, fantasies of things that gay people someday may do, what does that say um, about their project? And what does it say about the court that they're willing to entertain something that's based on something so flimsy? And fascinatingly, lower courts rejected it. Melissa Jira Grant, I want to thank you for being with us, staff writer at The New Republic. We'll link to your piece, The Mysterious Case of the Fake Gay Marriage Website, The Real Straight Man, and the Supreme Court. And we're going to end today's show looking at the other decision the Supreme Court is issuing today to decide the fate of President Biden's student debt relief plan. We're joined by David Dayan. 
executive director, executive editor of the American Prospect, where he has a piece headlined, The Student Loan Cases Unwilling Participant. David, coming out of what we just heard with Melissa around the gay, the fake gay marriage website, uh, talk about what you found in this other Supreme Court case. Yeah, it's a remarkable amount of similarity here. Uh, so in the student loan case, uh, the key issue is standing. Is someone injured by the fact that people are getting uh, this debt relief from the government on their student loans? And the state of Missouri, uh, along with several other states, uh, this this lawsuit, and they, they claim that uh, because there's a thing called the Missouri Higher Education Loan Authority, which is a servicer, they, they do the day-to-day operations on the loans, uh, that because they will be harmed, allegedly, actually they won't be harmed, but because they will allegedly be harmed by losing uh, a, a number of uh, student loans to service and uh, cause, owe the state of Missouri money, might not be able to pay it back. And uh, there are just enormous amounts of reasons why this is problematic. First of all, uh, the loan fund that uh, allegedly the uh, Missouri Higher Education Loan Authority won't be able to pay back to Missouri, they haven't made a payment on it in the last 15 years, and internal documents show that they have no intention of paying into this fund. Uh, the second thing is uh, internal emails have shown that the Missouri Higher Education Loan Authority had nothing to do with this case, didn't call it, solicit it, didn't know it was happening and didn't know they were being used as a substitute for standing for the state of Missouri uh, until they read about it in news reports. And there are internal emails between employees of Mohala saying we were opposed to this move, but we couldn't do anything about it. The Missouri state attorney general needed to claim that our borrowers were harmed uh, so that uh, they could have standing in the case. So, uh, you know, a, a real similarity of uh, we, we talk about the Supreme Court's corruption uh, in terms of, you know, going on junkets and things like this. But, uh, I mean, maybe a deeper corruption is the fact that they seem to not check the basic facts in these in these various cases. And they're ruling on things that uh, uh, aren't, aren't legitimate in some way. How are these not being fact checked? <laughs> I mean, uh, it, it really talk about how one, you found it. Uh, talk about how well, you found uh, it. it. It was through state sunshine laws. Uh, the, the Missouri Higher Education Loan Authority. It's called Mohela. Sort of, Mohela is sort of a, a, a state instrumentality, and and they uh, in the only way that the state of Missouri could get information from Mohela is that they had to use state sunshine laws extract that information. And uh, so uh, advocates of the Spin Borrower Protection Center did the same thing, looking up whether they were talking about this case, and they found this tranche of emails uh, that shows that they had nothing to do about it. And in one case, one employee uh, asks, you know, are we involved in this case? Are we the bad guys? Is, is the direct quote uh, that uh, the Mahela employee makes. So yeah, I mean, it's 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 a situation where uh, by the time it gets to the Supreme Court, uh, they they sort of assume facts, as as Melissa said, they assume the facts as as 
legitimate. Uh, but in this case, you know, if the court in fact rules to deny 43 million borrowers uh, reductions in their loan balances, they'll be doing it on a standing argument on behalf of a plaintiff that was a complete unwilling participant in this case. And if the court does rule that way, can President Biden uh, still cancel student debt? A lot of uh, advocacy groups say that uh, president could use their means right now. They are using the authority granted under something called the HEROES Act. Uh, which allows them in the cases of, of emergency like the pandemic to ensure that borrowers aren't made worse uh, by those those uh, that situation. They could also use the 1965 Higher Education Act uh, and its Compromise and Settlement Authority to uh, reduce loan balances. Uh, it certainly remains to be seen if uh, the Supreme Court sort of slaps down the president, whether uh, he would be willing uh, to use another authority to uh, try to do it in, in a different way. David Dayan, before we end the show, I want to ask you about another SCOTUS point. And for people who are not familiar, SCOTUS is Supreme Court of the United States. As we reported today in headlines, the wife of Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito leased land to a fossil fuel company for oil and gas exploration around the same time the firm stood to benefit from a major environmental case before the high court. The Intercept has just reported that Justice Alito did not recuse himself from the case, even though his family stood to profit from the outcome. And he ended up writing the five to four majority opinion in Sackett versus Environmental Protection Agency, which gutted protections for U.S. wetlands under the Clean Water Act. At the time, his wife, Martha Ann Baumgartner Alito, had an agreement with the firm Citizens Energy to earn revenue from any oil and gas produced on her land in Oklahoma, which she inherited from her father. And of course, this following the bombshell report in ProPublica that found that Justice Alito took this undisclosed luxury fishing vacation with Republican megadonor Paul Singer in 2008, then later ruled in Singer's favor in several cases. Singer, a major donor to the Manhattan Institute, the Republican think tank that supports blocking student debt relief. Members of the Debt Collective demanding Alito recuse himself from today's Supreme Court ruling on President Biden's plan to give 40 million student borrowers up to $20,000 each in debt relief. Your response to these latest revelations, which, of course, uh, follow the revelations uh, around Clarence Thomas and his relationship with the billionaire donor Harlan Crow. Well, I mean, the fact is that the Supreme Court is really a, a, a rogue institution. It's, it's an example of self-regulation. Uh, uh, justices decide on their own whether or not to recuse uh, the documents that they file. Uh, while journalists can can scrutinize those documents and and maybe find other cases where they didn't they didn't disclose certain gifts or other other uh, uh, personal uh, financial uh, windfalls, uh, it, there's basically no sanction for it. These are lifetime appointments. I mean, this this is what arrogance looks like in uh, in 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 uh, manifested form. And uh, there's nothing much that uh, the public can do about it except bring pressure to bear. Uh, and I think that some of the rulings that we've seen this year, which have been uh, a little more moderate, uh, could be a result of the legitimacy crisis sort of at the heart of the Supreme Court. 
it's good that uh, journalists and, and other people are paying more attention to uh, this circumstance, but it's, it's really frustrating. Well, of course, we'll continue to follow all of these issues. David Dayan, executive editor of The American Prospect, his piece will link to the student loan cases unwilling participant. Tune in Monday and Tuesday to Democracy Now!'s holiday specials. On Monday, we'll be bringing you the voice of the late, great Daniel Ellsberg, the whistleblower. And on Tuesday... We'll bring you James Earl Jones reading Frederick Douglass's What to the Slave this year, Fourth of July, and other voices in the people's history of the United States. Happy birthday to Isis Phillips. Democracy Now! is produced with Renee Phelps, Mike Burke, Dina Guster, Messiah Rhodes, Nermeen Sheer. Okay, um, we're going to go play it today. Uh, Daniel Ellsberg, because we haven't done it, um, but uh, we're going to do it now. So we're going to jump right back in here. Let's see. Or while skirting the nihilism that and and I the scene a term I borrowed from my friend Jeff Ruoff, a filmmaker. The Trump scene on the cross, a place. Oh, sorry. Older. Civil War. This is Dartmouth University professor Jeff Charlotte. I think the indictment. Wait a second here. Oh, no, we're not in the right place. Sorry, everybody. I see. Okay, down we go again. There we go. All right. Our Peace Report, I'm Amy Goodman. Today we spend the hour remembering the life and legacy of one of the world's most famous whistleblowers, Pentagon Papers whistleblower Daniel Ellsberg. He died Friday at the age of 92, just months after being diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. His family said he died peacefully at his home, in no pain, and released a statement that, quote, Daniel was a seeker of truth and a patriotic truth-teller, an anti-war activist, a beloved husband, father, grandfather, and great-grandfather, a dear friend to many, and an inspiration to countless more, unquote. His son, Robert Ellsberg, shared how his father once said he would want his gravestone to say he became a part of the anti-Vietnam and anti-nuclear movement. In 1971, Dan Ellsberg, then a top military strategist working for the Rand Corporation, risked life in prison by secretly copying and then leaking 7,000 pages of top-secret documents outlining the secret history of the U.S. war in Vietnam. The leak would end up helping to take down President Nixon, helping to end the war in Vietnam, and would lead to a major victory for press freedom. Henry Kissinger once called Ellsberg the most dangerous man in America. In 2009, a documentary of the same name told his story, which Dan Ellsberg narrated. We are going to win. With making national heroes out of those who steal secrets and publish them in the newspaper. Thousands we were killing was unjustified and homicide, and I couldn't see the difference between.
last weekend, portions of a highly classified Pentagon document came to light for all the world to see on cries of outrage from Washington. We gotta get this son of a bitch. Yes, Kennedy did send the troops in violation of the Geneva Accord. Johnson did start the buildup before he said he was going to. These guys were lying through their teeth when they were talking to us. And here it is in black and white. There's no way of denying it. The Times building is encircled by armed guards. We are printing tomorrow a top-secret government document. A name has now come out as the possible source of the Times Pentagon documents. It is that of Daniel Ellsberg, the top policy analyst for the Defense and State Department. I am prepared to answer to all the consequences of these decisions. Henry Kissinger said that Daniel Ellsberg was the most dangerous man in America, and he had to be stopped. The study was 47 volumes, 7,000 pages. We've dropped another 200,000 tons of bombs on Indochina. China. That's 10 Hiroshima's, one Hiroshima a week. What has remained significant about the release of the Pentagon Papers is the decision by a public official to give priority to conscience as compared to career. Daniel Ellsberg, whatever his intentions, gave aid and comfort to the enemy. It was a crime from the start, carried out by four presidents, and now a fifth president was doing the same. I'm not going to be part of this system of lying anymore. It wasn't that we were on the wrong side. We were the wrong side. The trailer for the most dangerous man in America, Daniel Ellsberg and the Pentagon Papers. The next administration went to extraordinary lengths to silence and punish Ellsberg, including breaking into his psychiatrist's office. He was charged with violating the Espionage Act and faced over 100 years in prison. But the government's misconduct led to charges against him and Anthony Russo being dismissed. Dan Ellsberg said he'd been inspired to leak the documents by anti-war protesters. In fact, shortly before the Times first reported on the Pentagon Papers, Ellsberg took part in an anti-war protest in Washington, D.C. on May Day, 1971, as part of an affinity group with Noam Chomsky and Howard Zinn. Over the past five decades, Dan Ellsberg remained a leading critic of U.S. militarism and U.S. nuclear weapons policy, as well as a prominent advocate for other whistleblowers. He wrote a memoir, Secrets, a memoir of Vietnam and the Pentagon Papers, as well as the 2017 book, The Doomsday Machine, Confessions of a Nuclear War Planner. Today, we'll feature our interviews with Dan Ellsberg over the years about Vietnam, as well as Ukraine, China, and the threat of nuclear war. We begin with our most recent interview, which was April 27th, when Dan joined us from his home in Kensington, California. He had just been recently diagnosed with inoperable pancreatic cancer. Dan talked about he went from being a military analyst to a whistleblower and why he risked going to jail in an effort to end the Vietnam War. Just yesterday was my wife's birthday and we recalled that it was on April 17th, 1965. Not everyone can remember their first date uh, like that, but that was the first SDS march against the war. And I was working in the Pentagon on the war, pursuing the war. She was going to interview people in a nationwide interview program she had, and she induced me to carry
carried her your heavy uh, phonograph around with her tape recorder to interview people. And I marched up to the White House hoping, carrying that recorder and hoping that I would not be in any picture of the Washington Post where my colleagues at the Pentagon was, <laughs> what? He's protesting the war on my one day off from the war during this. But the next day, I induced her to go to the cherry blossoms. And that was our first date. And we've been together ever since. So that was 57 years ago. She really was the one who exposed you, is this right, to um, the anti-war movement by forcing you to carry her tape recorder. I mean, you were protesting right outside where you worked. You'd gone from Rand Corporation to the Pentagon. Actually, uh, it was right outside the Lincoln Memorial where we heard the speeches, and then we marched toward the White House and around the White House. I went back that evening to the Pentagon where I was working, having gotten her to promise to meet me the next day to go see the cherry blossoms. But I was very much in sympathy with what I was hearing on that uh, stadium from I.F. Stone and others about the war. Uh, I felt at that time, as a cold warrior, that we were picking the wrong place to plant the flag on this one. This was a loser, and I was not enthusiastic about our getting involved in it. But that was my job, and I did it all too well. If I were asked what regrets I have today, they would have to do with uh, uh, doing a job I was asked to do that I knew was wrong for the country, and I did it to the best of my ability. The war was carried on by people who acted like that. So I want to talk about what you decided to do and how seminal, how key the anti-war movement was um, to your thinking, not only meeting Patricia, uh, but also seeing those war resistors, uh, what were called draft dodgers, the draft resistors who said they'd rather be in prison than uh, on the front lines in the war in Vietnam. Well, many, many people, when the Pentagon Papers came out, a lot of people in the anti-war movement said, what's new about this is what we've been saying all along, which was true, which was that we had taken up a French, a French neo-colonial role, an imperial role, essentially, against the self-government of Vietnam, the sovereignty of Vietnam, and we're doomed to uh, suffer the same fate as the French, essentially, to keep killing people and losing people until we finally decided to go home and leave them ruling their own home. Well, that was known inside. The insiders were pursuing the war and dropping the bombs, millions of tons of bombs that came to be even later than this. Uh, knew the same thing, and we're doing it uh, likewise. The question is what to do about it. All the people I was working with in the government by that time felt, everyone I could think of, uh, felt the war was hopeless, essentially. It was hopelessly stalemated. And it was, you know, coming out. The words hope, stalemate was taboo on the year I came back from Vietnam with hepatitis in 1967 after two years here. Lyndon Johnson had said no official is to use the word or hint at the word stalemate. And yet that's where it was. So the war continued. People did their jobs and it went on as though that judgment had not been made. And Eventually, what I really noticed was that there were people who felt much as I did and who were doing an awful lot more about it than I was doing. Namely, these were young people who you didn't have to be an expert. You didn't have to have a Ph.D. in international relations uh, as somebody uh, to, to see the truth about the, the war in Vietnam. As somebody said, you don't have to be an exeologist to know when a fish stinks. And these young people uh. refused to go 
to drafted uh, to uh, where they could have gone to Canada or Sweden or gotten a deferment or joined the Air Force National Guard like George W.H.W. Uh, Bush, somehow gotten out of the fighting, but no, they chose to give it as strong a resistance as they could nonviolently in the footsteps of Rosa Parks in the South and Martin Luther King and others and to say, no, this is wrong. You have to do this over our bodies. We will not participate in this because it's wrong. And uh, I realized when I met young men like this, like uh, Bob Eaton and Randy Keeler, were on their way to prison simply to make the strongest message they could, which I believed as well, that the war was wrong. I realized I could think of doing what they did too instead of just talking to insiders who felt as I did, but agreed there was just nothing you could do about it as long as the president wanted to carry on the war and his subordinates wanted to keep their jobs under the president, uh, that they could, in fact, uh, dissociate themselves from and denounce the war openly. Very recently, we've seen uh, very many comments that the what the Pentagon Papers showed was that the war was not winnable. Uh, actually, that had to, and that's why I gave the Pentagon Papers, and that was the effect of them. Actually, none of the people who went to prison to protest the war did so because they thought the war was not winnable. They did it because they thought, they thought the war was wrong. And that's something I think that people have not succeeded, have not been willing to recognize all these years. Not just that the war, not just that the U.S. had taken on some noble measure that it wasn't quite uh, energetic enough to pursue or had others or was easily distracted from or something like that. But that our country was, like so many other countries, capable of doing wrong and killing people without good reason. And uh, in effect, uh, an, an imperial kind of operation like that of the Japanese or the French after the Japanese, or the Chinese before either of them. And those are the footsteps we were walking in. Well, I think to this day, the very idea that the U.S. is in some ways comparable to those empires, that it is an empire, is a taboo. And a very unfortunate one, because it, it makes it impossible to understand what's going on. Why are we doing this? What's what's happening? Uh, why in the world are we in this position of ever time after time of fighting against the self-determination or the nationalism of other countries and uh, taking on those uh, murderous tasks as opposed to dealing with problems at home? I think of our country as a covert empire, where covert is a term of art in the Pentagon and the CIA in particular. Uh, and I worked with CIA people in Vietnam. My immediate boss there was a retired CIA general, General Edward Lansdale. And the word covert means plausibly deniable. It means uh, not just secret. I'm doing something that I don't tell you about, but that I plant evidence suggests that I'm doing something different. And I'm not doing it. Somebody else is doing it. And the person above me is somebody else. Layer after layer to prevent the president from holding any accountability for what's happening. I think we not only feel we need and do be able to plausibly deny that we are an empire, that we run other people's governments, other people's police forces, that we decide who goes to jail and who gets shot in that country. And second, we deny the means... We do 
strategy, but the covert empire assassinations, paramilitary, military buildups, um, and even you know, over wars in some cases, as in Vietnam or Iraq. Dan, I wanted to go uh, to that decision you made after giving your 13-year-old son, Robert, a copy of Thoreau's essay on civil disobedience. The civil disobedience you engaged in, this is a clip from that 2009 documentary, The Most Dangerous Man in America, Dan Ellsberg and the Pentagon Papers. It was the evening of October 1st, 1969, when I first smuggled several hundred pages of top secret documents out of my safe at the Rand Corporation. The study contained 47 volumes, 7,000 pages. My plan was to Xerox the study and reveal the secret history of the Vietnam War to the American people. So they, uh, so uh, 
innocent it was, and they, they left. But my objective with my son in particular was to let him see that there were times when it, the best thing you could do, you really needed to say no to a government policy, even at the risk of prison. And I wanted him to see that I had not gone off my nut, as I would be described uh, shortly, I was sure, that I was not acting as a traitor or fanatically or hysterically. I was just doing something in a business-like way that I felt had to be done, even though it had a risk. I wanted to plant that idea in his life, and it took hold, as it did with my daughter. My son is the editor-in-chief of Orbis Books, the Catholic seminary of uh, Liberation Theology uh, Publishing House, and my daughter is head of uh, Violence Against Women Project, a worldwide project at American University, both of them having been arrested at various times. So, and you that, wanted them to know this because you recognized that this could be among the last time you were spending I don't see them. Yes, I thought they'd otherwise just see me through heavy glass in a uh, in a prison and would have uh, the, the way that Julian Assange has had to grow up with his young sons in his uh, total security prison in Belmarsh for having facilitated truth-taking of the same kind that I've done. As a matter of fact, his is the first prosecution of a journalist for putting information out, and it will not be the last if he's successfully extradited over here. So he has a couple of children who've seen him literally only in prison, and uh, better than not seeing him at all. That's certainly the case. But um, uh, what he, uh, I revealed this year that I had the information uh, from Julian Assange, essentially, that Chelsea Manning had given Assange, and which was later put out in the papers, I had that before the papers, uh, before the newspapers had them, meaning that I was as indictable right now as I'm talking to you uh, as any of the people who've been indicted by this Justice Department because they're working with a law whose plain language is, on the one hand, unconstitutional from the point of view of the First Amendment, but read properly just says that anyone who reads or handles or stores a piece of paper that has been marked to be protected, uh, marked classified by the government, is subject uh, to imprisonment. That implies even to readers of the New York Times and very definitely to journalists like Charlie Savage or the publishers or Julian himself. In other words, in that respect, we've gone backwards since that day, that was, after all, mine was the first prosecution of anyone for telling the truth to the American people, and there have been several dozen since, and the first one uh, of a journalist, actually, is, I think, just preceding the first one of a reader before we get there. So this this law, the Espionage Act, very much needs to be repealed or rescinded in such a way that it does not serve like a British Official Secrets Act, which is a perfect law for an empire. Daniel Ellsberg, Pentagon Papers whistleblower, speaking in April. He died Friday at the age of 92, just months after being diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. When we come back, Dan Ellsberg talks about Ukraine, China, the threat of nuclear war, and more. Back in 30 seconds.
by Blood Rock. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Today, we remember Pentagon Papers whistleblower Dan Ellsberg, who died Friday at the age of 92, just months after being diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. His actions helped take down President Nixon and the war in Vietnam lead to a major victory for press freedom. Over the past half century, Ellsberg remained an anti-war and anti-nuclear activist who inspired a new generation of whistleblowers. We return now to our interview in April when I asked Dan about the latest leak of Pentagon documents by 21-year-old old Air National Guard member Jack Teixeira, who was indicted last week on six counts of willful retention and transmission of classified information. I asked Dan Ellsberg about what the leaks say about the war in Ukraine. It's shown from the reaction to these leaks, and the major leak being, <laughs> once again, like the Pentagon Papers, that when a war appears to be stalemated, it may be stalemated from the inside just as well. That's what the Pentagon Papers showed. But there is no real prospect for progress in that killing people is on either side unjustified by any prospect of any humane result. Intelligence estimates have shown that a year from now, we will probably be in pretty much the same positions as stalemate and will not be willing to negotiate. What does that say about our uh, the people who are making our foreign policy? If that doesn't define a, a crisis, an emergency, uh, what would? Well, uh, yes, I suppose the prospect that we're about to lose within a month, and that's not what either is facing yet. I don't want to test how either side reacts if they're facing that. If the U.S. were to do what Biden is urged to do by many, which is to direct U.S. participation in the war, shooting Russians, as I say, for the first time since 1920, a hundred years after the First World War ended, we were still shooting at Russians against Bolsheviks in 1920. Every Russian knows that. How many Americans know that? Any? So uh, they have that very much in their memory. When Biden is urged to send direct planes that, that Ukrainians can't yet operate, like the F-16, tanks uh, that the, uh, they cannot yet operate, the tendency to send Americans to operate those tanks and get them right away into business will be very strong along with it. I can only hope that Biden will be pressed by a large part of the public, pressed not to involve the U.S. directly in that war and to be pursuing negotiations, which it is currently absolutely uh, eschewing, is rejecting the idea of negotiations. There's increasing information that one year ago, in early April 2022, the Zelensky and Putin essentially had an agreement within very close to an agreement on a pre-war uh, status quo, returning to a pre-war status quo in Crimea, in the Donbass, in, uh, in relation to NATO and everything else, but that the U.S. and the British, Boris Johnson went over that and said, we are not ready for that. We want the war to continue. We will not accept a negotiation. I would say that was a crime against humanity.
and I see it with all seriousness um, to the idea that we needed to see people killed on both sides in order to, quote, to weaken the Russians, not for the benefit of the Ukrainians, but for an overall geopolitical strategy was wicked. And however the war started, and I think with uh, both incredibly uh, bad judgment by Putin and aggression and atrocity, and on the other hand, provocation by the United States in the sense of policies that were consciously foreseen to increase the probability of a Russian crime of this sort. Tells me that I think there were a lot of Americans who wanted this war, and they got exactly what they wanted, even better than they could have imagined. Huge arms sales to our allies, the U.S. again having an essential role in Europe with an indispensable enemy, an enemy that we could not run the world without Russia, and Russia stepped into that role very willingly to say that Russia had no choice uh, but to do what they did do is fairly absurd. That's like saying you can provoke a person to shoot themselves in the foot, or in this case, to kneecap themselves. Uh, Putin had no choice but to kneecap himself and to give himself 800 more miles of adversarial border with Finland and to uh, resuscitate, resuscitate NATO and get these arms sales and so forth. It's just absurd. I also wanted to bring up China because in 2021, you revealed that the government had drawn up plans to attack China uh, with nuclear weapons over a crisis in the Taiwan Strait. Can you talk about the relevance of that today and when you got that information? Yes. I revealed that information right after The Economist magazine had a cover with Taiwan on the cover and a big bull's mark, uh, bull mark on, on front of it showing that it was, quote, the most dangerous place in the world at that point. And what was at stake was a U.S. intervention in the politics of China, namely supporting a secession movement, an independence movement, by a portion of China, regarded almost universally by Chinese as part of China, uh, supporting it in a way which the Chinese were totally forecasting uh, would lead to war, that they would not accept it any more than Lincoln accepted the secession of the Confederacy in this case. And we were pressing for them in a way that I have to say I can't entirely understand. People act as if they want war with China. How can that be? Selling them arms? Yes, I see that. But why they, why they want to change the relation of Taiwan, which has been pretty much the same since 1979, right now in a way that the Chinese guarantee us will lead to war, uh, is inscrutable to me. And you but said anyway, that these yeah, nuclear war plans over the Taiwan no. Straits uh, were made in 1958? 58, yeah, that's right. And uh, by the way, they, there was almost a corresponding crisis earlier in 1954-55, so this was known as the second Taiwan crisis in the 50s. But uh, the idea there was that we would initiate nuclear war if the Chinese successfully bombarded by artillery islands that were within artillery range, actually within visual range of the mainland, very easy, a couple of them are just a mile, a mile and a half off from the mainland, to keep those rocks from 
become controlled by Beijing, uh, we were prepared to send in U.S. planes of blockade, send in U.S. ships to break that blockade. And if the artillery kept that off, if there was a danger of losing U.S. ships, we would hit Chinese targets as much as as far away as Shanghai, which would certainly, in Eisenhower's terms, and who okayed this, if necessary, if necessary to get through to those islands, we would initiate nuclear war. And he foresaw that as leading to Russian, the ally of China, uh, attacks on uh, on uh, Taiwan and on Okinawa, on Guam, even on Japan, which in turn guaranteed, in terms of our plan, all-out nuclear war, hitting every city in Russia and China, uh, killing as our estimates were at that time, 600 million people. And their relevance today? Over Taiwan. And that was what they, that's what they were planning to do then. The number of targets in China has not reduced since then. Uh, the, uh, that was a time when any fighting with the Russians under Eisenhower, even if it started over Berlin, was guaranteed to include targeting China as a whole as well. That may have changed to some extent, but uh, to a large extent at various times, we still continue to say, shouldn't we have a plan for war with Russia that doesn't include uh, destroying China? To which the answer is, well, do we want to destroy Russia and not China also? Will we destroy it in the process? That would leave China ruling the world. In short, Russia and China have to be regarded as a joint target complex. Okay, this is insanity. This is a, a form of insanity. It's a kind of myth and hoax that has taken over the public. It is as insane as uh, QAnon or as the belief that Trump is the president currently of the United States. And yet the belief that we can do less bad by striking first than if we strike second is what confronts us in Ukraine with a real possibility of a nuclear war coming out of this country. In other words, of most life on Earth, not all, most life on Earth being extinguished as a matter of the control of Crimea or the Donbass or Taiwan. That's insane. Pentagon Papers whistleblower Daniel Ellsberg speaking on Democracy Now! in April, soon after being diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. He died Friday at the age of 92. In December 2017, Dan Ellsberg joins us to talk about his book, The Doomsday Machine, Confessions of a Nuclear War Planner. In 1961, Dan Ellsberg was a consultant for the Pentagon and the White House, where he drafted President John F. Kennedy's Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara's plans for nuclear war. So you made copies of top secret reports for plans about nuclear war years before you copied the Pentagon Papers right. and released them to the press? Essentially my notes and sometimes verbatim excerpts, not the entire plans themselves, <clears throat> but on plans that were then unknown 
to the president, to begin with, to President Kennedy. I briefed his aide, George Bundy, in his first month in office on the nature of the plans and some of the other problems, like the delegation of authority to theater commanders for nuclear war by President Eisenhower, which was fairly shocking to um, George Bundy, even though Kennedy chose to renew that delegation, as other presidents have. But I was given the job of uh, improving the Eisenhower plans, which was not a very high bar, actually, at that time, because they were, on their face, the worst plans in the history of warfare. A number of people who saw them, but very few civilians ever got a look at them. In fact, the Joint Chiefs couldn't really get the targets out of General LeMay at the Strategic Air Command. And there was a good reason for that. They were insane. Uh, they called for first strike plans, which was by order of President Eisenhower. He didn't want any plan for a limited war of any kind with the Soviet Union under any circumstances, because that would enable the army to ask for enormous numbers of divisions or even tactical nuclear weapons to deal with the Soviets. So he required that the only plan for fighting Soviets under any circumstances, such as an encounter in the Berlin corridor, the access to West Berlin, or over Iran, which was already uh, a flashpoint at that point, or Yugoslavia, if they'd gone in. However, the war started uh, with an uprising in East Germany, for example. However, it got started. Eisenhower's directed plan was for all-out war in a first initiation of nuclear war, assuming the Soviets had not used nuclear weapons. And that plan called, in our first strike, for hitting every city, actually every town, over 25,000, in the USSR, and every city in China. A war with Russia would inevitably involve immediate attacks on every city in China. In the course of doing this, <coughs> pardon, there were no reserves. Everything was to be thrown as soon as it was available. It was a vast trucking operation of thermonuclear weapons over to the USSR, but not only the USSR. The captive nations, the East Europe satellites in the Warsaw Pact, were to be hit in their air defenses, which were all their cities, their transport points, their communications of any kind. But they were, BT, uh, they were to be annihilated as well. Uh, I couldn't believe when I saw these that the Joint Chiefs actually had ever calculated how many people they would actually kill in this course. In fact, colonels who were friends of mine in the air staff told me they'd never seen an actual figure for the uh, total casualties. Uh, we had exact figures of the number of targets and uh, how many planes would be needed and every sort of thing, many calculations, but not victims. So I drafted a question which the aide to McGeorge Bundy, Bob Comer, sent to the Joint Chiefs in the name of the president. And the question was, in the event of your carrying out your general nuclear war plans, which were first strike plans, how many will die? First I asked, in the USSR and China alone. In the thought that, by the way, they'd be embarrassed to discover, to say, we have to have more time. We've never really calculated that. I was wrong, uh, and my friends were wrong in the Air Force. They came back with an answer very quickly. 325 million people in the USSR and China alone. Well, <clears throat> then I asked, all right, how many altogether? And a few days later, 100 million in East Europe, the captive nations. Another 100 million in West Europe, our allies, from our own strikes by fallout depending on which way the wind blew. And however the wind blew, a third hundred million in 
adjoining countries, neutral countries like Austria and Finland or Afghanistan and Japan, Northern India and so forth, a total of 600 million people. That was a time, by the way, when the population of the world was 3 billion. And that was an underestimate of their casualties, 100 holocausts. It was very clear that uh, they hadn't included, I hadn't asked actually, what would Russian retaliation be against us and against West Europe? Uh, they were thought at that time, wrongly, to have hundreds of weapons against the U.S., but they did have hundreds of weapons against West Europe. No question, West Europe would go under any circumstances. If we were defending West Europe, Germany, for example, we were planning to destroy the continent in order to save it. 600 million, that was 100 holocausts. And when I held the piece of paper in my hand that had that figure, that they'd sent out unembarrassedly, you know, proudly to the president, here's what we will do. I thought, this is the most evil plan that has ever existed. It's insane. The weapons the machinery that will carry this out. This is no hypothetical plan like Herman Kahn might have uh, conceived at the Doomsday Machine that he thought up at the Rand Corporation as my colleague. This was an actual war plan for how we would use the existing weapons, so many of which I'd seen already that time. Pentagon Papers whistleblower Dan Ellsberg speaking on Democracy Now! in December 2017 about his book, The Doomsday Machine, Confessions of a Nuclear War Planner. Two years later, in 2019, I spoke to Daniel Ellsberg a day after the Justice Department charged WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange with 17 counts of violating the Espionage Act for publishing U.S. military and diplomatic documents exposing U.S. war crimes. Assange, who's locked up in the Belmarsh Prison in London, faces up to 175 years in prison if extradited to the U.S. and convicted here. Yesterday is a day that will be live in the history of journalism, of law in this country, and of civil liberties uh, in this country because it was a direct attack on the First Amendment, an unprecedented one. There hasn't actually been such a significant attack on the freedom of the press, the First Amendment, which is the bedrock of our republic, really, our form of government, since my case in 1971, 48 years ago. But this is, uh, I was indicted as a source and I warned newsmen then that that would not be the last indictment of a source if I were convicted. Well, I wasn't convicted. The, the charges were dropped on governmental misconduct, and it was another 10 years before anybody else faced that charge under the Espionage Act again, Samuel Loring Morrison. And it was uh, not until President Obama that nine cases were brought, as I'd been warning for so long. But my warning really was that it wasn't going to stop there. Almost inevitably, there would be a stronger attack directly on the foundations of journalism against editors, publishers, and journalists themselves. And we've now seen that as of yesterday. That's a new front in President uh, Trump's war on the free press, which he regards as the enemy of the people. And the Trump administration saying Julian Assange is not a publisher, is not a journalist. That's why he is not protected by the First Amendment. In the face of this new indictment, uh, which, and let me correct something that's been uh, said just a little wrong uh, by everybody so far. He doesn't just face 170 years. That's for the 70, uh, 17 counts on the Espionage Act, each worth 10. Plus, he's still facing the five-year conspiracy charge that he started out with a few weeks ago. 
Uh, I was sure that, that the administration did not want to keep Julian Assange in jail just for five years. So I've been expecting these Espionage Act charges. Uh, I really expected them later after he was extradited, because adding them now makes it a little more complicated for Britain to extradite him now, as I understand it. Uh, they're not supposed to extradite for political offenses or for political motives, and this is obviously for both political motives and political offenses. So from Julian Assange's point of view, it makes extradition a little more difficult. Why then did they bring it right now? Well, coming back to the uh, to the case, by the way, that I faced, I faced only 11 uh, felony act charges, each worth 10 years in prison, plus a conspiracy charge worth five. So I was facing exactly 115 years in prison. He's facing exactly 175. Now, that's not a difference. It makes any difference. In both cases, it's a question of a life sentence. I think that the reason they brought these charges so soon, uh, because they had until June 12th, uh, was to lay out the necessity to lay out for extradition all the charges they planned to bring. And I don't assume these are the last ones. They've got a couple of weeks left to string up some new charges. They started out with a charge that made Julian look something other than a normal journalist. Uh, the help to hacking a password sounded like something that even in the digital age, perhaps most journalists wouldn't do. And that would uh, hope to separate him from the support of other journalists. In this case, when they had to lay out their larger charge, this is straight journalism. Uh, they mentioned, for instance, that he solicited in, uh, in, uh, investigative material, he solicited classified information. Terribly, he didn't just passively receive it over the transom. I can't count the number of times I've been solicited for classified information, starting with the Pentagon Papers, but long after that, and that's by every member of the responsible press that I dealt with, the Times, the Post, AP, uh, you name it. That's journalism. So what they have done is recognizable, I think, this time to all journalists uh, that they are in the crosshairs of this one. They may not have known enough about digital uh, performance to help a source conceal her identity by using new passwords, as uh, Julian was charged with. They may not be able to do that, but every one of them has eagerly received classified information and solicited it. We end our show with Daniel Ellsberg in his own words, May 18th, 2018, when I spoke to him at a right livelihood laureate gathering at University of California, Santa Cruz. I asked him what message he had for government insiders who are considering becoming whistleblowers. My message to them is, don't do what I did. Don't wait till the bombs are actually falling, or thousands more have died, before you do what I wish I'd done years earlier, in 64 or even 61 on the nuclear issue, and that is, reveal the truth that you know, the dangerous truths uh, that are being withheld by the government, at whatever cost to yourself, whatever risk that may take, consider doing that because a war's worth of lives may be at stake. Or in the case of the two existential crises I'm talking about, the future of humanity is at stake. So many graduating classes, I think, have been taught, uh, have been told uh, year after year for half a century that they face a crossroads or that uh, much depends on what they do. That's no exaggeration right now. It's this generation, not the next one, that, that the people living right now that have to change these problems fast. And I think truth-telling 
is crucial to mobilize that. Developed Papers whistleblower Daniel Ellsberg died Friday at the age of 92, just months after being diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Our deepest condolences to his family, his wife Patricia, his children Robert, Mary, and Michael, his grandchildren, and his great granddaughter. That does it for our show. I'm Amy. Okay, that was only a week ago, everybody. But um, yeah. I'm going to finish reading our friend in uh, the times of war and peace right now, Aurora Ray. And uh, let's see, where did I leave off here? Yes, Introduction to the Pleiades. The Pleiadians... That's today, this is the 30th, right? Yes! (laughs) The Pleiadians. Yes. Uh, The Pleiadians are a group of beings that reside in the Pleiades, the star system, which is located in the constellation Taurus. I think I read that one. What is the awakening process? Yes. The awakening process is a spiritual journey that involves an individual becoming aware of their true self and their purpose of life. This process can be triggered by a variety of factors, including major life changes, conscious living, or a sudden spiritual awakening. During during the awakening process, an individual may experience a wide range of physical and emotional symptoms including an unexplained sense of joy, weightlessness, and a deep longing for something more. There are a natural, these are a natural part of the awakening process. Common signs of the awakening process. There are several common signs that an individual may be going through uh, in, in an awakening process. These include intense emotions, Many people report experiencing heightened emotions during the awakening process. They may feel a deep sense of love, of compassion for others. Or they may experience intense feelings of happiness, bliss, and ecstasy for no apparent reason. (laughs) Increased sensitivity. Individuals going through an awakening process may become more sensitive to their environment. They may notice subtle changes in energy and become more tuned to the emotions of others. Spiritual experiences. Many people report having spiritual experiences during the awakening process, such as seeing angels or having profound insights into the nature of reality. They might also experience vivid dreams in which they can fly. Understanding the Pleiadian perspective on the awakening process. The Pleiadians have a deep understanding of the awakening process and have been helping individuals navigate this journey for thousands of years. According to the Pleiadians, the awakening process 
is a natural part of humanity's evolution. The Pleiadians believe that Earth is going through a period of transformation and that many individuals are being called to awaken to their true nature and and purpose. They believe that this awakening process is essential for humanity to evolve to the next level of consciousness. The role of the Pleiadians in the awakening process. The Pleiadians play a significant role in the awakening process as they are able to channel high frequency energy that can help individuals navigate this journey. They are known for their ability to heal and provide guidance. The Pleiadians are also able to provide insight into the nature of reality and can help individuals understand their true purpose in life. Also, they are known for their ability to communicate telepathically and can provide guidance and support to individuals who are struggling with their awakening process. How to connect with the Pleiadians. Connecting with the Pleiadians is a personal and individual journey. And there are several ways that you, that you can do this. One of the most effective ways to connect with the Pleiadians is through meditation. During meditation, you can focus your attention on connecting with the Pleiadians and ask for their guidance and support. You may also want to use, try using crystals such as clear quartz or selenite, which have a high vibration and can help you connect with the Pleiadians. Tools and techniques for navigating the awakening process. Navigating the awakening process can be challenging, yet there are several tools and techniques that can help you. One of the most effective tools is mindfulness, which involves being present at the moment and observing your thoughts and emotions without judgment. Other helpful tools include journaling, practicing, practicing self-care, uh, journaling, practicing self-care, and seeking support for a spiritual advice from a spiritual advisor or a community. It is also essential to stay grounded and connected to your physical body during the awakening process, as this can help you stay centered and focused. Common challenges in the awakening process and how to overcome them. The awakening process can be challenging and many individuals experience a range of physical and emotional symptoms. One of the most common challenges is feeling overwhelmed, which can make it difficult to stay focused on on your journey. To overcome this challenge, it can be helpful to seek support from a spiritual advisor or community. You may, you may indeed also want to try practicing self-care such as taking time for yourself, getting plenty of rest, engaging in activities that bring you peace. The importance of self-care in the awakening process. Self-care is essential during this awakening process as it can help you stay grounded, centered, and focused. It is essential to take care of your physical body, 
by getting plenty of rest, eating a healthy diet, engaging in regular exercise. You may also want to try incorporating mindfulness practices, such as meditation or yoga, into your daily routine. It is also important to take time for yourself and engage in activities that bring you joy and fulfillment. Final thoughts on the arrival of Pleiadians. The arrival of the Pleiadians marks a significant shift in the evolution of humanity. These beings have a deep understanding of the spiritual realm and are here to help individuals navigate the awakening process. As you are going through an awakening process, it is essential to stay grounded, centered, and focused. Seek support from a spiritual teacher. Practice self-care and connect with the Pleiadians through meditation or other techniques. Remember that the awakening process is a natural part of humanity's evolution and that with the, with the help of the Pleiadians, you can navigate this journey with grace, compassion, and love. We love you dearly. We are here with you. We are your family of light. We are the Galactic Federation. Aho, Aurora Ray, Ambassador of the Galactic Federation. And I pass this to another galactic friend of ours, uh, Rainbird. And uh, the Emerald Serpent Feathered One is on this talking stick with all the angels, fairies, feathers, rainbows, crystals, and Menahunis and uh, Sasquatch and all the little people and all the big people and everything in the middle. Here it comes, Rainbird. Okay, I caught it. <laughs> you got no, no fireworks. <laughs> oh, please! I hope they don't. Okay, you can. You, we'll put fireworks on it tomorrow. So well, there you go. And we are the bird tribe, right? The return of the bird tribe. So let's fly. Yes, I just don't want them to do any any fireworks around here because the kitties go completely bonkers. Oh, I see. I I I understand. Yeah, I don't want to lose our kitties. We got four of them in the back there. And, yeah, that's uh, right. Uh huh. Yes, the bunny rabbit. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that's well, the most. I'll have to go and have a talk with him about what what it's about that it's not aimed at him. That's right. <laughs> uh, that's the most unique bunny. Been living with four four putty tats all his life. Her. What life. is a cat? I mean, it just is a cat. It just looks like a bunny. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. Pashats are and Pashat do. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so thank you for tonight. Um, I really lost listening to Mother tonight because I listened to 33 minutes of 172 and 396. Put me out completely. And <laughs> <Hey>, it worked. <laughs> Well, I knew it would. I go, oh, no, I'm going to miss Mother. And I did. <laughs> you said it was 33 minutes. I'll never make it. <laughs> well, well, you took us through it. You know, you took us to another realm, and we all hung out with you vicariously. 
Yeah. <laughs> I was in another realm for sure. Anyway, I, yeah, I couldn't even figure out. No, see, that's Amy talking. What? Where have I been? <laughs> <laughs> I was, I don't know. I really went with it, that's for sure. So, but takes a lot. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> takes a lot for I, the I thought that was, that, and yeah. tomorrow will be a little bit challenging for me because I will be on the Appalachian Trail. And so I might have to contact Cheryl and have her cover the housekeeping for me. Oh. But I, I won't be on the trail long. I'm starting it out at 1, hiking to the Bald Mountain, hanging out with friends and my friend that we wanted to put some ashes up there. It was her neighborhood. that She, she lived under the bald. So we're, we're honoring her and going up there, hiking up. Wow. That's going to be well, some physical yeah. energy there. Thank you for your uh, adventure. Yeah. Yeah. I just I just didn't, didn't know we were starting as late as one, which means when when we, we get back, um, I might be missing it. So I'll contact Cheryl in the morning and see if she can. If she can't do the housekeeping, I can do it later in the day. But, you know, it's probably important to do it when we do it. So. All right. Well, uh, I'm Patrick's talking stick. Back to you, to you, Rama. Have you got something to, for us to listen to to go out with? Okay. Tell yeah. us. Tell us what you got there, Rama. Alan Watts. Give it away, and it will come back. Love is something. If you give it away, it keeps 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 on making more. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Here we go, everybody. Mm. Crunchy Cookie M&M. That what I want, basically, what I really want is what you want. And I don't know what you want. Surprise me. But that's my, that's the kinship between I and thou. So when I ask, I go right down to the question, should we start with, what do I want? The answer is, I don't know. When Bodhidharma was asked, who are you? Which is another form of the same question. He said, I don't know. Planting flowers to which the butterflies come. Bodhidharma says, I know not. I don't know what I want. When you don't know what you want, you've re reached the state of desirelessness. When you really don't, you see, there's a, there's a beginning stage of not knowing and there's an ending stage of not knowing. In the beginning stage, you don't know what you want because you haven't thought about it or you've only thought superficially. Then when you, somebody forces you to think about it and go through it and say, yeah, I think I like this, I think I like that, I think I like the other, there's the middle stage. Then you get beyond that. Say, is that what I really want? In the end you say, 
No, I don't think that's it. I might be satisfied with it for a while, and I wouldn't turn my nose up at it. But it's not really what I want. Why don't you really know what you want? Two reasons that you don't really know what you want. Number one, you have it. <laughs> Number two, you don't know yourself. Because you never can. The Godhead is never an object of its own knowledge. Just as a knife doesn't cut itself, fire doesn't burn itself, light doesn't illumine itself. It's always an endless mystery to itself. I don't know. And this I don't know, uttered in the infinite interior of the spirit, this I don't know, is the same thing as I love, I let go, I don't try to force or control. It's the same thing as humility. And so the Upanishads say, if you think that you understand Brahman, you do not understand. And you have yet to be instructed further. If you know that you do not understand, then you truly understand. For the Brahman is unknown to those who know it, and known to those who know it not. And the principle is that any time you, as it were, voluntarily let up control, in other words, cease to cling to yourself, <laughs> you have an access of power. Because you're wasting energy all the time in self-defense. Trying to manage things, trying to force things to conform to your will. The moment you stop doing that, that wasted energy is available. And therefore, you are, in that sense, having that energy available, you are one with the divine principle. You have the energy. When you're trying, however, to act as if you were God, that is to say, you don't trust anybody and you're the dictator and you have to keep everybody in line, you lose the divine energy. Because what you're doing is simply defending yourself. So then, the principle is, the more you give it away, the more it comes back. Now you say, I don't have the courage to give it away. I'm afraid. And you can only overcome that by realizing you better give it away because there's no way of holding on to it. The meaning of the fact, you see, that everything is dissolving constantly, that we're all falling apart, we're all in a process of constant death, and that uh, the world we hope men set their hearts upon turns ashes or it prospers and like snow upon the desert's dusty face, lighting a little hour or two is dawn, you know, all that Omar Khayyam jazz. <laughs> You know, the cloud-cat towers, the gorgeous palaces, the great globe itself, I, all which it inherits, shall dissolve, and like this insubstantial pageant faded, leave not a rack behind. All falling apart. Everything is. That's the, the great assistance to you. See, that, that fact that everything is in decay is your helper. That is allowing you that you don't have to let go 
because there's nothing to hold on to. <laughs> it's achieved for you, in other words, by the process of nature. So once you see that uh, you just don't have a prayer, and it's all washed up, and that you will vanish and leave not a rack behind, and you really get with that, suddenly you find you have the power. This enormous access of energy. But it's not power that came to you because you grabbed it. it. Came in entirely the opposite way. And power that comes to you in that opposite way is power with which you can be trusted. Om Shiva, everybody. Mm. Thank you, Mama. Thank you, Ellen Watts. Mm -hmm. And thank you for this universe that we get to participate in co-creating something new. The Saren now. And we'll see you on the bridge in your dreams. And Satnam. Satnam Di. Ah, home, Takuyasu. Until we meet this afternoon, everyone. Aloha. Namaste.